The Danes of Starfall are one of the most ancient houses in the Seven Kingdoms, though their fame largely rests on their ancestral sword, called Dawn, and the men who wields it. All magic is mysterious in George R. R. Martin's world. He doesn't like to give explanations. The characters in the story don't fully understand how it works, so why should we? House Dane is among the most mystical of houses, so by the transitive property, House Dane is mysterious. Aha! Logic. Don't question it. Of course, we'll break down the mystical elements as best as we can and try to break through that haze a bit. I always say the more mysterious, the more room there is for theorizing. So we've got theories too, more than usual, as we attempt to decode the even more ancient origins of House Dane. Topics today include the origins of the Danes, Starfall and High Hermitage, the Office of Sword of the Morning, Dawn, of course. Is it Lightbringer? Why is it so like Valyrian Steel? Bloodlines, of course, as well, those unusual Dane looks, and plenty more. So, hello and welcome to another episode of History of Westeros Podcast, the podcast dedicated to George R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire book series, as well as HBO's Game of Thrones. No Game of Thrones talk today, as we know from the last episode, the Danes aren't really a big part of the TV show. Perhaps they will be, but if that comes, well, we'll discuss it when that happens. For now, we'll deal with this trove of, of knowledge and fun stuff to play with as far as what we have from the World of Ice and Fire and the main novels and a few other places. Now, being in the Song of Ice and Fire community for as long as I've been, which is whew, more well, well over 10 years, let's not think about that too much, <laughs> I've met a lot of interesting people along the way and noticed, as I'm sure a lot of you all have, that this fandom really inspires a lot of people to write and theorize and podcast, etc. It's pretty special in that regard. And today, to talk about the ancient history of House Dane, we've got a guest who specializes in some of the ancient folklore and legends of A Song of Ice and Fire, particularly symbolic analysis. Lucifer means Lightbringer, a.k.a. LML, a.k.a. David Beers. You've got lots of names here. <laughs> He's the host of a blog and podcast called The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire. Welcome, David. Hey, thanks for having me, Aziz. It's great to be here. Uh, LML works fine. Lucifer is a little cumbersome, so, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll abbreviate LML. We had to... I had to explain the full story, first of all, but we'll go with the abbreviated one from here on. You can just call me Lucifer. <laughs> so you're <laughs> mostly known for your theory about the long night being the result of a meteor impact from some kind of comet slash moon collision. This theory and its cousins have gotten some attention, yeah? Yes, that's my big flame, uh, big claim to fame. <laughs> flame to claim, flame to fame, flame to claim. Yeah. Uh, well, there's, <laughs> lots, there's lots of fire involved when the moon explodes. That much I could tell you. Um, Perfect. <laughs> yeah, but I, you're right. I, I was uh, I was lucky to get a couple of mentions on Brendan B. Fish's uh, fan theory poll just a couple weeks back, and uh, voting turned out pretty well. A couple of my theories got a decent amount of support, including one we'll talk about uh, later in the episode. And uh, it's uh, a big thrill to be here on the podcast with you guys. I've looked up to you guys for a long time, along with Radio Westeros. Shout out to Lady Gwen and Yoke Boy. Of course. And uh, the four of you guys together, two of your podcasts, have really shaped my thinking a lot as I began to reread and analyze A Song of Ice and Fire in more detail. Yeah, just so. Well, we're happy to have you as well. Um, I definitely am a fan of your work, and I'm excited to bring it out and help a few more people put their eyes on it and get to thinking about it as well. So, yeah, and tell everyone how you got started. It's, it's, not, it's not typical. Well, no, I was uh, sitting alone in my dark basement and uh, listening to History of Westeros and Radio Westeros, particularly your episodes about Azor High and the Long Night, and then I uh, first started putting together the puzzle of this moon disaster. I'm also a big fan of uh, Graham Hancock, who writes a lot about the idea of mythology based on observation of the heavens 
and uh, the cycles of nature, including the idea that ancient man liked to describe comets and falling meteors as dragons and fiery snakes. And actually, people from all over the world have done this. And of course, Danny refers to the comet as a dragon's tail right before she wakes her dragons from stone in Drogo's funeral pyre. Uh, So that myth that Danny hears in A Game of Thrones, the one which describes the second moon wandering too close and cracking to pour forth a thousand thousand dragons. Well, I was listening to your podcast read that part, and then it just suddenly clicked. The fiery dragons that poured forth from a moon cataclysm would have to be fiery meteors, but just described as dragons. I mean, that's what you'd expect from explosion, chunks of huge moon rock falling to Earth as fiery meteors. And uh, of course, large meteorite impacts are one of the few things which can actually cause a long night scenario in the real world by throwing up so much dust and debris that uh, it clouds the skies, blocks out the sun for years, uh, temperature lowers, and we have something kind of like a long night. Yeah, it's like a a kind of a game of telephone in a sense. If you're not familiar with what that means, it's when you tell somebody something and they tell somebody somebody else, they tell something else, the story grows in the telling. And that's how myths are. In a lot of sense, the myths are really old. So they've had thousands and thousands of years to grow in the telling. And George R. R. Martin's world has lots of this. He understands that concept. He understands how that works in the real world. And so we can decode some of his ancient myths a bit or a lot, depending, and learn some things about them and, and kind of see where he was thinking and, and to see where maybe the grain of truth within these myths comes from, at least within the setting of his fantasy world. So I could definitely see someone referring to a comet as a dragon. And book one even makes that association. Danny's dragons are born under the shadow of the comet, and several people refer to the comets that way. The moon cracking, too, that comes up quite a few times. How about you elaborate on that real quick before we get going? Yeah, well, just to follow up on what you're saying, I think that it's... um we all know that George Martin tries to emulate the real world quite a bit, you know, albeit he's added in a little bit of magic. And this idea of historical telephone with the myth-making is exactly right. It's another thing that he's basically reproduced from the real world. And uh, frequently the people that make up the myths aren't the ones, I mean, thousands of years later, there's other people interpreting them, and they aren't connected with the original intent. So, for example, you've got people talking about dragons coming from the moon, but 10,000 years ago, it probably made a little more sense because they understood that the dragons were meteors. And now, all this time later, that's gotten lost in translation. So, as far as the moon cracking, there's basically two big stories that have a moon cracking. One is uh, the Azor High story, where actually the moon cracks from her cry of anguish when, she, when he stabs her. And then there's that Carthine legend of the moon cracking. And I just sort of put those together. Um, you know, I mean, if you think about the Azor High story, the moon cracking is kind of the underrated part. You know, we get caught up in the flaming sword and the human sacrifice, and the moon cracking just kind of slips right by. Yeah, that's true. It's something George is good at, misdirecting important details via bigger ones, taking the spotlight. As we talked about in our own Comet episode, it means different things to different people. That's a a fun thing to think about it as well. So let's go a little farther, talk about how this is perceived, and let's try to tie this into how all this relates to House Dane, which I'm sure a few people are a little maybe wondering right now. (laughs) It does, actually. Um, And so uh, imagine the story of Lightbringer, where the Comet is the flaming sword, and the moon is Nissa Nissa. Okay? So the Comet stabbing the moon is basically the same as the sword stabbing Nissa Nissa. And then when the moon cracks, dragons pour forth. 
So you've got Azor High, the warrior of fire, he'd be the sun, and he's perceived as wielding the comet against the moon. And then the moon cracks, the dragons pour forth, or the meteors. And the thing is that flaming meteors, in addition to being perceived as dragons, can also be perceived as flaming swords. That's right. Now, you don't actually think this is only astronomy, though. You think there's a parallel, like this, ra- this really happened, as well as it being a, a you know, cosmic parallel, right? Yeah, absolutely. Basically, I think he's doing an as-above-so-below type of thing, where the things that happen in the celestial realm create a pattern which then plays out on Earth. So I do think there was real flaming swords and also some asshole named Azor High who stabbed his wife and cracked the moon, yes. <laughs> well, we are big proponents of pointing out how George R. R. Martin likes to use the history of Westeros to predict the future of A Song of Ice and Fire, and I think there's a lot of room here for that sort of thinking. Many of the characters and situations in the story have hist- historic parallels, so literary and symbolic parallels fit this pattern pretty well, although it, it may seem a little different. It's the same type of thinking. And it's more necessary here because of the just the mystery that we're faced with. We don't have a lot, a lot of hard evidence to go by, but we still have a lot to go on. So what's interesting about these ideas is that uh, they basically the story of Lightbringer, as I'm telling it, parallels the story of Dawn. Uh, I'm equating Nissa Nissa's heart with the heart of a moon, which falls from heaven, and like the moon, uh, as well as the planets visible from Earth, they were called stars. So basically, the fallen moon is a fallen star. Uh, So a magic sword made in the heart of a fallen star basically could be made from a moon meteor. Right on, yeah. So there's your first connection between Dawn and Lightbringer that we're going to bring to to light. Ha! Puns. We're (laughs) we're sure you all have been expecting that. So of course, we're going to save Dawn for last. Well, nearly last. For now, we will do a bit brief recap and then we'll do some history starting with starfall what we'll call it the dawn of dane and in the preceding episode we talked arthur and ashara edric a dark star edric's unnamed father and his aunt illyria now let's see where they came from let's ruminate on the famous ancestors and mysterious origins at the mouth of the Torrentine, House Dane raised its castle on an island where that roaring tumultuous river broadens to meet the sea Legend says the first Dane was led to the site when he followed the track of a falling star and there found a stone of magical powers. His descendants ruled over the western mountains for centuries thereafter as kings of the Torrentine and lords of Starfall. Now a few meta-observations from that quote. The reveal that Starfall was built on an island was a bit of a surprise. Look around at the maps and you'll pretty much always see it as slightly inland or on the coast east of Torrentine. Even here, for example. It's hard to find an accurate picture because the fandom has had it wrong from about 1996 till late 2014. Even the World of Ice and Fire has it wrong. If you have, a, I don't know if they've fixed it in later editions. I only have the first edition. But if you look at your picture of Starfall on the map there, it doesn't really look like it's on an island. It looks like it's slightly inland. So, important distinction to note that a lot of the maps are wrong. <laughs> Now, we always knew it was by the sea, though. I don't mean we, I mean everyone, uh, or should have anyway, since very early on, we're told that Ashara Dane threw herself into the sea from a tower at Starfall. Now, you can't do that inland unless Ashara's really, really good at jumping. Maybe she has wing flaps like a flying squirrel. But probably not, right? (laughs) So the castle has undoubtedly had additions, changes, etc. over the years. Let's talk about it here. 
It should also be noted that we are told in the world of Ice and Fire that there are no true cities in Dorne. So Starfall, like a lot of places in Dorne, is more of a castle, castle by the sea, than a city. The closest thing to a city in Dorne, I suppose, is the Shadow City. And that's kind of a nickname, maybe a misnomer, but Dorne is Dorne. So let's talk about Starfall. So again, it's supposedly the site of a fallen star, uh, hence the name, but it sure is a convenient spot, that island. In other words, the cynic in me is doubting the story a bit, though I only doubt the landing spot. I'm not doubting the meteorite part, although we can't 100% be sure about that. I do like that idea, and since we're told it, I'm not going to challenge it too much. The, the, uh, it's also more fun to believe, like I said. Yeah, I agree with your thinking here, Aziz. Um, history is full of people who have migrated and taken their myths and folklore with them, only later adapting their mythology to match their current surroundings. So the idea that the ancestors of House Dane could have found their magic meteor anywhere else and then taken the story with them as they migrated is uh, eminently plausible, I would say. And uh, yeah, meteor swords, you know, why not? I believe too. <laughs> <laughs> so as for the actual spot, yeah, look, Starfall is at the mouth of the Torrentine, which is just another reason why the spot is choice. Generally, the mouth of a river is a, is a good place to be for a settlement. This implies the possibility that the kings and lords of Starfall had ships, and perhaps they have a small amount of power at sea today, though we have no inkling of that whatsoever, just a possibility. Living by the sea gives them access to the sea for travel, but also for food, which is a crucial resource to consider when picking a spot to you know, plant your flag, build your castle, etc. Right, and then the world of ice and fire gives us the other main reason why a First Men family would settle at Starfall, which is basically that the foothills uh, south of the Red Mountains are described as a fertile green belt, where clouds drop their moisture, making them one of the few places in Dorne that is actually not desert. That would include Star, uh, Starfall and High Hermitage, as well as the other settlements along the Torrentine, like Blackmont. And these lands are not very heavily populated now, however. So, uh, you know, it may be that they're more fertile then, not as much now. But um, the World of Ice and Fire does tell us it's a fertile green belt, so that is a reason to stop and stay. Yeah, and that would certainly be appealing, given how crappy it is in other areas of Dorne. <laughs> <laughs> now, timber is scarce along the southern coast of Dorne, and probably was in the past as well, but maybe not. This is a long time we're talking about, and even you know, erosion and ecology can change over the course of thousands of years. I mean... Parts of the Middle East used to be fertile, and now it's a you know a lot of a lot of it's desert. So just there, there you go. The descendants of the first Dane were also said to have ruled over the Western Mountains for centuries thereafter. So they would have had access to whatever timber was available, even if it wasn't right there on their island or on the nearby coasts. We don't know if this fertile green belt has the right timber for shipbuilding, however. So this may still have been an obstacle. Yeah, the spot seems like a good choice, uh, and perhaps even more so in the past. But even still, there was a cap on how powerful they could be due to the natural barriers. Starfall is a great base, and it has access to important resources, and it's probably absurdly hard to capture being on an island. But apart from that fertile area in the foothills, it's largely surrounded by inhospitable territory, which means uh, there's really nowhere to expand. The Red Mountains to the west are said to be a natural barrier, and of course to the east is nothing but that big hot desert. Yeah, control over the Torrentine means control over those living along it, but it and its two main tributaries stretch all the way through the Red Mountains into the Reach near Horn Hill, the Tarley Lands, that is. Now, the important castle Blackmont is also along the Torrentine, so there are other important houses vying for control. 
But that may be something of a moot point because the Torrentine is a nasty river with waterfalls, rapids, crevices. It's not clear that there is a whole lot of trade going up and down the Torrentine because of this nasty these, this nastiness. If there is trade going up and down it, you, you can't really imagine, given that, that it goes all the way from top to bottom, north to south, south to north. You'd have to think there are some stretches that are maybe navigable and tradable, but that's punctuated along these bad spots where you just do wouldn't want to try to send ships. So maybe kind of like there's certain sections of short area where you can trade back and forth, but all, you're not going to take a ship from Starfall to the Reach, at least not through the Torrentine, not from, what, not from how we understand it. But there's also high termitage along the way, and then, of course, we're not exactly clear the precise location of House Hermitage, other than what we've, House Hermitage, High Hermitage, uh, on the maps, we've, we see it, but we don't know exactly, like, whether the river is close by or how high up in the mountains it is, but it's possible that's uh, a related deal. In other words, perhaps you could go upriver from Starfall, you know, and embark or disembark on the shore there and, and how high hermitage is just to hike up the hills there something like that we don't really know now essentially what that means is that for the day the ancient kings of house stain to maintain an empire they'd essentially have to do it on foot through the mountains they wouldn't be able to use that river which would make it very much harder yeah and that explains a lot about why they were powerful early on when there was no one to challenge them when they had the best resources but Given these peculiarities and these natural barriers within their own realm, it's hard for them to keep hold of those things, hard to keep these other, you know, these other peoples from perhaps becoming independent or, you know, allying with other houses. So the kings of the Torrentine, great long ago, but they fade over time because their neighbors continued to grow more populous while they sat there on their small island, which probably has a maximum population. It can't just keep growing. If the Torrentine was useful for quick travel throughout their kingdom, well, that might have helped. But instead, like you say, they have to move around and, and do a lot of this by foot, which is, that doesn't work so well. It has a lot, a lot of problems with that method. So you can see why they lost their power over time. Now let's talk about how, what Starfall looks like. Well, there's a place called the Palestone Tower. That's what Ashara jumped from. Kind of got to think that's white. Pale marble or some other kind of white stone. Is the whole castle white though? Is the is the rest a different tower or a different color? Just that one part is white. It's kind of cool to think about the possibilities. I hope we get to see it one day. I'm gonna guess that the pale stone sword tower is white and the rest of the castle might not be, but pure guesswork here. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, mostly I, I would say yeah, they probably built it out of marble. I mean, that'd have it'd be a lot of meteor stone to make a whole castle out of. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. It would be cool to see a castle uh, glowing like milk glass. <laughs> wow, yeah, that would be neat. But uh, most likely it's marble or something like the Erie. Now, one interesting thing about the coloring is that, as we'll talk about a little bit later, Starfall got burnt once or twice at least back in the day. And by dragons, not by regular fire. So that could affect the color of the stones. I'm not sure they could clean the burn the burns off from dragon flames. It might start. Hey, that's hey, I mean, that's how Edric Dane uh, Edric Dane cut his teeth <laughs> out, out there on the scaffolding, scrubbing down the white walls. <laughs> Maybe that's just it. paint paint over it. Like, yeah, it used to be a natural <laughs> glow, but now it's this artificial painted glow. <laughs> Yeah, a dragon fire and graffiti artist, man. What can you do? <laughs> Balerion was here. <laughs> <laughs> so as an aside, talking about 
fast forward to A Song of Ice and Fire, where we stand right now. There's the situation in the Red Wine Straits where the Ironborn are reaving like crazy. There's ships all over. There's sunken ships. There's pirating going on. Now, we, we theorize perhaps that Starfall has some trading going on. They may have, they've got to have some small port at least. It may not be a major port. It probably isn't a major port, but they got to have something. They're on an island. they got to have some ships. They may not have a lot of ships, but if they do, if they have any kind of shipping, it might be menaced by this, this whole thing, this, this Euron deal. We don't know for sure, but I think it's pretty likely uh, if they have ships, this is happening. That doesn't mean I think it's likely that it's happening, but if they have ships, then, you know, why not pirate a little bit over this way and go after the Dane ships? But again, that's pure, purely theoretical, and given there's a lot of reasons to doubt that they even have any significant amount of shipping, or that that Euron even cares about them. What, what do you think? Well, I guess it would come down to strategic advantage. Um, the Reach is known as a region overflowing with wealth. It's got many trading vessels to pirate. It's a pretty sweet prize. Um, so for, for Euron to want to go after Starfall, I guess there'd have to be more of a strategic advantage, or I don't know, maybe he's going to try to beat Darkstar to, to down there to steal swords. Um, <laughs> That'd perhaps. be cool. We'll take a look here at this map shot, and you can see what we're talking about as far as the proximity to the Red Wine Straits, and make your own judgment on what you think Huron might be up to. Now let's talk about High Hermitage, the other Dane castle. The name itself makes it sound remote and secure. Probably not large, but, you know, it could be. Here's a peek. This will, from now on, by the way, folks, any map shot we put up on the screen here will be also appearing on the website. You can take a look at it later, historyofwesteros.com. Find it under the heading of this episode, House Dane Part 2. Now, from the looks of it, our guesses kind of check out, at least up there, high up in the Red Mountains. Now, castles are hard to take. We know that, generally speaking. Mountain castles are even harder to take. Also, generally speaking, you often can't use catapults because the target is really too high up there in the mountain, and often the castle is part of the mountain itself, Castle Rock being the most extreme example. You can't catapult a mountain into rubble. That just won't work. No, and also consider that because High, Her uh, high Hermitage falls inside that fertile green belt uh, in the Red Mountains, it means that they probably have access to farmlands, and therefore they probably have excellent food stores to use in case of siege. Um, and if they wanted to, I imagine they could probably cut all the trees down in the nearby area so there's no trees to use to make rams or any of that. And you certainly can't carry that kind of stuff up into the mountains. So, yeah, I, I agree. Um, and uh, the World Book also speaks of hidden valleys and high meadows further up in the mountains where the grass was, quote, green and sweet. So, again, there seems to be food resources up there. We don't know where the line is between the foothills and the mountains, but I, I think it's important to point this out because a lot of people think Dorne, they think desert. Uh, but the Red Mountains are not desert. Um, they are an area that's pleasant to live, which means that you'd, you know, you'd have some food resources up there to withstand a siege. Think the mountain clans in the north for kind of an inverse parallel. There's plenty of them living up there, as we saw. Stannis was able to recruit quite a few. And while they don't have a lot of food and... You know, it's it's maybe harsher than some other areas. There are, you know, there's places on mountains where you can, you know, do pasturage and or farms. So I would, I'm guessing this isn't some huge population center hiding up in the mountains, but it's probably more than the common perception is. Now, we'll eventually, hopefully, see this. We'll maybe get a closer look at all this and, and confirm or deny some of these guesses because Ariahota is heading there. 
and presumably his POV will continue. He won't just be dropped as a POV. And we'll get to see what's going on at High Hermitage. And I'm not thinking this will be a simple mission for him and Obara and Balon Swan. To make it worse, like any mountain castle, it could easily connect to a natural cave system or sometime in their up to 10,000 long history, the many knights of High Hermitage could have made and expanded such caves into tunnels. We've seen tunnels at Griffin's Roost. The Red Keep, you know, the one leading to Shatayas. And we're told there's some in Winterfell as well. And those aren't even mountain castles. We got more opportunity to build tunnels when there's mountains around. Yeah, totally. Yeah, especially if there's already caves to kind of, you know, some of the work's already been done for you. So this is just one of those many minor details that we look forward to from the Winds of Winter. If this or anything similar is the case, and there's just no chance that Hota and company are going to be able to besiege Darkstar. He'll have, you can just walk right out the back door, hidden tunnels or something like that. So this could lead to difficult times for them. They're probably not looking forward to it. <laughs> Doran may have underestimated the situation, which is really saying something because he's already declared Darkstar the most dangerous man in Doran. I assume they'll have a decent-sized group. We don't know what they're going with. I'm going to guess two to 300 men. It could be more, but it could be less. And if it's less, I'm a little worried for them. Yeah, I don't know how you beard a Darkstar in his den, but you probably need more than three people, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and just as a side note, I... What kind of beard does Darkstar wear? Probably one of those big, woolly, cheesy hipster beards, right? I think he's clean-shaven, actually. Oh, yeah, that's right. So, oh, so he needs, he needs a beard. That's it. He's so hipster that he doesn't have a beard. <laughs> well, he needs one. So I hope they give him one. Yeah. That's what they need to do. They need to capture him and throw him in jail until he grows a beard and then kill him. <laughs> Make him shave with Dawn. In terms of the origin of High Hermitage, well, we know even less than we do about Starfall, and we don't know a whole lot about Starfall, but that won't stop us from some naked speculation. In ancient times there, it's said that there were some indicating, perhaps, that the Red Mountains might not have been as red a long time ago, as, as LML was saying here. Point being, High Hermitage could have been built near one of these areas that was more fertile back in the day, maybe still somewhat fertile, but maybe less so. Uh, I can't imagine they picked a crappy spot initially. <laughs> it, may be, it may be crappy now, but at the time, we were like, hey, this crappy spot's perfect for a castle. That just, I don't know why. The, uh, I wouldn't put that to, uh, I wouldn't guess that that's how it went down. So there's a chance, it, there's a small chance it even predates Starfall. I think it's a pretty remote chance, but it is possible. It wouldn't be, I don't think that the Danes founded High Hermitage before the Danes founded Starfall, but it's possible, considering the Danes conquered the area as kings of the Torrentine, maybe they took High Hermitage from somebody else. Pure speculation again. No, no way to know that's whether that's true or not. The other, another possibility, which is probably more likely, is the house was that the castle was built, founded by a cadet, like some up and coming, outstanding member of House Dane who wanted to do his own thing. Maybe there was a family schism, vaguely similar, similar to how the green and red apple fossilways split, which which was portrayed in the Hedge Knight, if if you're not familiar. But the, the best, but not only, guess, according to traditional wisdom, would put the founding as during the time of the First Men, which is a segue to talking about the First Men during the time of the Danes. This really could mean, you know, that we're talking about the Age of Heroes. It's a broad enough range, but really, for all we know, High Hermitage was built recently. How's that for narrowing it down? Anywhere from 12,000 years ago to a few years ago. <laughs> so let's turn to a related origin question. Let's turn to the Danes as people rather than their castles. As with quite a few ancient Westerosi families, they claim descent from pre-long night times. 
keeping the long night concept in front of your mind, think about how the name Dane is unmistakable in that it contains the word day rather prominently. This might seem like a frivolous connection, just looking at the word saying, hey, the word day is in there. That makes, that's, that's gotta mean something. Uh, maybe that sounds frivolous, but I don't think so because we're told more than once and straight from the mouth of George that these first name, sorry, these first men houses, the names of them are often very descriptive and simple, like Stark, Tallheart, Strong, Hunter, Fisher, Redfort, Coldwater, Blackwood. But of course, there's also Bolton, Dustin, Riswell, just name names that don't describe something. So we don't know for sure, but it's definitely worth consideration. The deriving of their house name could be from the word day or something along those lines. Day could, could, could have drifted into saying Dane or place of the Danes, day place, something like that that just became concatenated into a different word. Lots of possibilities there. If I could just jump in, I, I would just like to say that uh, Bolton... Actually, it, it means bolt on. <laughs> <laughs> Got me there. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I do agree, though. The Danes do seem clearly associated with the long night, um, the whole sort of the morning deal, the anachronistic, inexplicable blade. Um, you know, I mean, that kind of, you know, a lot of a lot of families might claim that they go back to the dawn of the days. But how Stane actually has this inexplicable magic sword, which says, you know, there's something mysterious and ancient about them. And I know we're going to get to that, but uh Definitely, definitely makes you look at them a little harder and think there's some sort of mystery there. Yeah, it seems like they have more credibility for being that ancient because of some of these things and other things, as we'll see. This may tie into one or more of the origin theories we'll toss out for the Danes. As protectors of the sword Dawn, which of course we'll be talking about plenty this episode, having a name related to the coming of day or the ending of night is a simple enough connection to make. You know, the Guardians of Dawn, right? Like, that's daytime, beginning of day. You, could, you know, it's not a... I, I can't be too precise it's on that. Tin it's tinfoil, Aziz. It's tinfoil. You're, you're crackpotting. <laughs> Valerian steel tinfoil. <laughs> Valerian foil? What is that word? Yeah, it would be a Valerian tinfoil, yeah. Right. Valerian tinfoil. Exactly, exactly. So what we are told, if we want to go by that, is that some first man guy or woman followed the path of a falling star and built a castle. Now, if that story has any truth to it, let's set it alongside the legends of those times and see how it fits. Garth the Green. Supposedly led a huge host across the Stepstones back when it was a land bridge. Most took a quick look at Dorne's deserts and sand and said, uh, no, we can do better than this. We came here looking for a better home, and this is a freaking desert, so <laughs> no thanks. But that was the majority opinion, not the opinion of every single one of these migrants. Some stuck behind in the two areas described as being fertile along the banks of the Green Blood and in the Red Mountains in their foothills. The fact that no one else wanted to live here might even be a plus for some people, a point of pride for the first man houses of Dorne. They're like, well, no one wants to live here. We should, you know, maybe that makes it safer. No one's going to try to take this from us. And if they do, well, heck, we're, we're tough people living up in the mountains. Come get it. Manly men. Right. <laughs> so they're stubborn. They're tough. They're maybe optimistic. Something along those lines. Probably not super prosperous, but independent, may, probably proud. We've seen how much the Dornish value that. So this, this all speaks to why Dorne was the last kingdom to join the rest under the Iron Throne, why it was the least united well before Aegon the Conqueror came along and stayed disunited, you know, even when it was united, <laughs> the least united of the United Kingdoms. Now, in the case of Starfall, like we said, someone or more likely several someones wandered around the southern parts of the Red Mountains, maybe looking for a home. Maybe eventually they found this island. Maybe they went right to it because of the falling star thing, but... 
What do you think? You think they found it or? You know, I, I, I always, uh, I never had reason to question the idea that they had found the star there. But now that you mentioned the convenience of the location, it does kind of make you think that maybe the myth comes from somewhere else. And on my own research, I've got some ideas about meteors falling in various places connected to the long night. So, yeah, I, I do think there's possibility that the story may have been transplanted. Definitely. It could have been, yeah, this is, we could be looking at what's actually an old story from Essos. And, you know, back when these were, it was one continent, of course, back in the day, it wasn't, there wasn't really a, they wouldn't, the people of those days probably didn't call them Westeros and Essos. I don't know how separately they thought of the the land separated by that land bridge, who knows, but whether they thought of it as one continent or just a separate thing, who knows. So, well, either way, these people stayed behind tougher and stubborner, the the first Dane, almost certainly one of these people, fits that description, or at least the person who chose the spot to build the first castle that came to be known as Starfall. To build a castle on an island, you know, you figure there's some stone there already, maybe not. If they, if not, then they'd have to ship the stone from nearby the mainland, that, that might be a little expensive, but who knows how they pulled that off. Hell, we just, we just need to see the place, that'll answer a lot of questions. Send a POV there, George, please. I used to imagine a maester at Starfall as an upcoming prologue or epilogue, giving us insight into the history of the castle and the island, a good opportunity for George to spill some details about Starfall. And as he's wandering around doing his maesterly business, he goes into the room where Dawn is stored for safekeeping, whatever, however that works, some vault or some stashed inside a stone, <laughs> sword in the stone kind of deal. <laughs> and then he, as he's walking through the room, Dawn bursts into flames like, you know, just like that. That would be pretty epic. That would have to be an epilogue, not a prologue, I think. More be the epilogue of, of the Winds of Winter. <laughs> so That would be a shit-your-pants epilogue right there. It would be. That'd be up there. That's, that's even more astonishing than the Kevin epilogue, which uh, has plenty of astonishment in it. Yeah, no, uh, myself, I'm, I'm hoping for uh, some ancient visions of falling stars either seen through like a glass candle or maybe weirwood net. I want to see the hammer of the waters, goddammit. Kaboom! <laughs> yeah, kaboom, <laughs> indeed. That'd be cool. Bran, you can show us that, right? So, as we were saying earlier, Dorne is sparse now. It was probably sparse then. Deep deserts, high mountains, stubborn people to keep them separated. These factors may, uh, th- these factors may have contributed to the isolationist tendencies, or perhaps the isolationist tendencies contributed to this. A little, a little column A, a little column B, maybe. Uh, And some of the peculiar attitudes, as well as some of the peculiar genetics, which we'll talk about later, may relate to some of this. Of just how, not just House Dane, but some of the other nearby houses. Now, the World of Ice and Fire gives us some emphasis on the subject. Other small kingdoms existed elsewhere in Dorne, in the deep sands, amongst the high peaks, along the salt shore, and on the isles and the broken arm. But few of these ever approached the power and prestige of the Danes of Starfall, the Fowlers of Skyreach in the Wide Way, and the Ironwoods of Ironwood. No doubt the kings of House Dane fought their Dornish neighbors from time to time, but let's not forget the Reach, so nearby and so tempting. The Reach is wealthy while Dorne is not. As Old Town grew wealthy and powerful, neighboring lords and petty kings turned covetous eyes upon its riches, and pirates and reavers from beyond the seas heard tales of its splendors as well. Thrice in the space of a single century, the city was taken and sacked, once by the Dornish king Samuel Dane, the Starfire, once by Corrid the Cruel and his Iron Men, and once by Giles Gardner, the Woe. Damn, everyone likes to raid, sack, pillage, or burn Old Town. 
I sure hope that doesn't again happen again, Aziz. <laughs> uh oh, watch out, Sam. Dun dun dun. Watch out, Alaris the Sphinx. But I, I got to figure, just as a side note, there. I wonder. We hear that eventually, Old Town, the guy, one of the High Towers, captured a whole bunch of Ironborn and made them build walls around around the city. And this 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 sequence of Old Town being sacked several times in a row probably becomes before those walls were built, but maybe not. Now, but thanks to the attacks like this, and surely there were times where Starfall was attacked, maybe not as often because it's harder to get to, but at least their, standing, their surrounding territory could have been attacked as well, and rivalries were bound to develop, and some of these still exist. There's always the generic bias that Reachmen ha- and Dornishmen have fairly often, and Darkstar suggests a specific old enmity here. What I know is that Danes have been killing Oakharts for several thousand years. His arrogance took her breath away. It seems to me that Oakharts have been killing Danes for just as long. We all have our family traditions. <laughs> now, perhaps the High Towers remember this King Samwell the Starfire and hate the Danes for it. Seems like a long time to hold a grudge, but there have been many chances to renew and sustain the hatred over the years, and we know Westerosi tend to hang on to grievances. Well, for example, a Dane-led army attacked all around Old Town as recently as 300 years ago. Sir Joffrey Dane, in fact. Joffrey Dane. That's kind of a weird combination of thoughts there. I'm trying to imagine Arthur Dane with Joffrey Baratheon's head, or Joffrey Lannister, if you prefer. It's a weird, weird little combo. Anyway, House Kai. That's another one that's close by. Uh, they could be an old rival. They're on the coast there. Sun House is their seat, and they could perhaps have seen the wrong end of Dawn a few too many times. <laughs> <laughs> and there are even some older grudges within the borders of Dorne itself, one would think. These prejudices are key to understanding how Darkstar and Edric might be viewed by other characters in world. In general, they're not so popular with the Reach, just like most of Dorne, even though there are many varieties of Dornishmen. Perhaps it's because some of the biases and enmities developed before there were all these varieties. That's an interesting thing. The, we think of Dorne as a melting pot, but of different ethnicities and bloodlines, but it didn't start off that way. So let's look at how the coming of the Andals affected things. Well, in a sense, actually, we can't, because there's very little directly that we know about this period as it pertains to the Danes. We don't know if they were overrun or taken over or married into, etc. There's a lot of different ways the Andals did their thing with the first men houses, variety of methods they used, assimilation, conquest, marriage, etc., all these things. So we're not really sure how it played a role with the Danes. We don't know their house words, the Danes. That's more of an Andal custom to have a motto, which is why we're bringing it up now. But surely they have words. We just don't know what they are. George will probably tell us eventually. They have clearly embraced Andal culture to some extent, at least as far as we know, perhaps about as much as most houses, maybe a little less. But the main sign of this is chivalry. They even adopted it to the sword of the morning business because we're told that a knight worthy enough can wield it. Now, unless there are major problems with the understanding of the timeline, which is possible, given the rumors that a descendant of Garth Greenhand named John the Oak was the real founder of chivalry and knighthood, which would place it way earlier than common history tells us. Now, if that's the case, the knighthood is perhaps as old as Dawn, or at least as old as the Office of Sword of the Morning, in which case that changes things a bit. But the more likely scenario is that Dawn belonged to House Dane long before knighthood came to Westeros. There's an So Spake Martin uh, tidbit here that talks about George commenting on Dawn at a public forum. 
The same guy asked about the Danes and the Sword of the Morning, asking how that title is decided. George said the Sword of the Morning is always a member of House Dane, someone who is deemed worthy of wielding Dawn as decided within the house, that whoever it is would have, the earn, would have to earn the right to wield it. Now, it says member, not knight, notice. Now, maybe it just works out that way, since nowadays anyone worthy of Dawn is probably a knight anyway, so that doesn't seem to matter. But the SSMs are also not 100% reliable, since this isn't like a recording of what George said. This is someone transcribing. That person could have just written member instead of knight. Or George may have meant to say knight and didn't. It's important to take this into account, but we can't put it above what we're told in the books. But we need to consider it. Yeah, uh, SSMs, you know, not always reliable, to put it mildly. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I would tend to think that the most likely explanation is the mundane one, which is that the word knight is just a more recent addition. It's essentially the modern word for warrior of great prowess, and that before knighthood, most likely it was just a peerless warrior of House Dane, and now they say knight, but who knows? I agree. It's, it's probably just simple language drift and not a massive change to how the Sword of the Morning works, but if it is some sort of potential edit, for lack of a better term, to the way the Sword of the Morning office works. Well, that's going to come up again because we've got some other ideas on how maybe the office came about in the first place and it affects this whole theory. Now, setting aside that for a moment, as we'll be talking about Dawn later, there's an older theory that myself and some others were wondering about, whether the House Jordane... Jordan, Car Stark. Remember Carhold, the Carhold Starks are where we got the Car Starks. So it was long wondered if Jordan is a cadet branch, another cadet branch of the Danes. But it's kind of along the lines of the reference of Tor, the Torrentine, the, the river Torrentine. Well, the Tor, rather, Tor is a book publisher, and that's Robert Jordan's publisher, and Robert Jordan is the influence for House Jordan. And George clarified in the World of Ice and Fire that the Jordanes are a purely Andal house, so there doesn't seem to be any room for them to be descended from the Danes, so that's an ADT, which is another dead theory. Bum, bum, bum. Yes. Sorry, Jordanes, you do not relate to the Danes, as far as we know. Now... The Andal migrations happened over a very long period of time. It wasn't just one wave of Andals, and, and that was that. It was potentially hundreds of years where that happened, and petty kingdoms were gradually becoming a thing of the past. These two things were kind of happening alongside each other. There was a lot of consolidation. It was this general time period that formed the modern seven kingdoms that we're more familiar with now. But back in the day, Dorne was slow to follow the program, and they still did okay. Uh... There was a king of the Reach, a king of the North, king of the Vale, but no king of Dorn. Never. That title has never been held by anyone. Though some claimed they did, perhaps. Those were mere words, and words are win. Dorn had many kings, but they only ruled over parts of it. Yeah, Dorn is quite honestly like the leftovers of Westeros. It's like the odds and ends, the little pieces of land that nobody wanted. The geography really doesn't lend itself to unification or centralized power. I mean, the big desert in the middle isolates all the various habitable areas of land, and to unify Dorne, you'd basically be able to have to move troops back and forth across the desert, which would be even harder than moving them up and down the Red Mountains. So as a result, everyone just sort of does their own thing, which is why we seem to have so many petty kings, I think, and why it was so hard for the Targaryens to conquer. 
Right. Uh, the Andal migration saw Dorne with fewer kings than it once had, to be fair. There was some consolidation, just less than compared to the other regions of Westeros. There's a good chance that for a time, there were as many kings in Dorne as all the rest of Westeros put together. As they started to consolidate, Dorne lagged behind because they value their independence more, and of course, all the geographical features that keep them separated. So there's a good chance the kings of Starfall were uh, part of that group. Probably were, almost certainly. Now, as an aside, here's a funny question. What did the crown of the kings of Starfall look like? Did they still have it? Is it, is it a relic? Did Nymeria take it when she set them down? Maybe it looks like Dawn. Is there a little bit of moon meteor left over for them to uh, make a crown after they made the sword? Fun, but unanswerable. Okay, and so this is where I chime in with a little bit of my ancient folklore uh, expertise, quote-unquote. Um, and I, it makes me think of the Andals founding hero, Huger Hill, he had seven stars pulled down from heaven for his crown. So the idea of a crown made from falling stars is not without precedent by any means. And then in the north with the King of Winter, we have a crown made of swords. And remember, of course, the idea is that dawn is made from a meteorite. So we've got a crown made of stars and a crown made of swords, both in the book. And I'm not really alleging any wild conspiracies there. Just sort of pointing out as it a potential precedent. Uh, if we want to believe in the milk glass, milk glass crown... You know, there it is. Right on. Back on target, Dorne was eventually united, as we know, and House Dane had to give up its crown, whatever it looked like and wherever it was made from. So now we will move on to the next part. Part two, Under the Sun and the Spear. The Roinar. The unification of Dorne and the coming of the Roinar was more important for House Dane than the coming of the Andals, it seems. So this gets its own part. The Roinar came to Westeros, led by Nymeria, and unlike most refugees who flee a conquering enemy, she and her people were more benefit than burden. When you think of ref refugees, you normally don't think of superior technology and cultural sophistication. But that's what they brought. That's true. Nymeria married Lord Mars Martell, and their combined powers, manpower, and technology were enough to conquer the extremely disunited Dorne, piece by piece. The most powerful king... In this era was Yorick Ironwood. So Nymeria and Mors started by conquering lesser foes to increase their power so that it would be enough to challenge that of Ironwood. House Dane was one of these earlier conquests as King Vorian, the Sword of the Evening and said to be the greatest knight in Dorne, was defeated. The Danes then fought for the new look House Martell from that point forward. But it was not King Vorian who bent the knee, apparently, as he was one of the six kings sent to the Wall in golden fetters by Nymeria. So it seems like he was defeated and captured. So Starfall and probably High Hermitage submitted to, what would their celebrity name be? Ny Nymorzia, the, the ship name for Moors and Nymeria. Nymor was one of their descendants. I'd call it <laughs> Moors Maria, I think. Moor, Moors Maria. <laughs> Moors the Marrier. <laughs> nice. This new pledge of fealty would create the first Lord Dane, whether a son, brother, or cousin of King Vorian, and he was an ally of Nymeria and Mors Martell. It needs to be said that this would probably be before Roinar inheritance custom became widespread, or else we should consider that the first Lord Dane might have been a lady. Cue the Aerosmith. <laughs> <laughs> For nine years, Mors Martell and his allies, amongst them House Fowler of Skyreach, House Tolland of Ghost Hill, House Dane of Starfall, and House Uller of the Hellholt, struggled against Ironwood and his bannermen, the Jordanes of the Tor, the Wiles of the Stoneway, together with the Blackmonts, the Corgiles, and many more, in battles too numerous to mention. 
Now, out of those, we'd expect the Danes to have fought against the Blackmonts of Blackmont and the Corgiles of Sandstone the most, given proximity. Those, that's who their nearest enemies were out of those listed. And you got to think maybe there's some old rivalries in play there, so they get a chance to fight people that they've already hated for a while. Definitely possible. Now, if you can see on the map here, Starfall, Blackmont, and Sandstone, all within range of each other, nicely aligned there. Morse Martell himself would fall in battle against the Ironwoods, and Nymeria remarried before winning the war. Her second husband was Lord Uller, and he was aged at the time of their marriage, and doesn't seem to have lived very long after they were wed. Nymeria had lived a full life by then, yet she was still young enough to bear a son with her third husband. Who was Sir Davos Dane, the Sword of the Morning, perhaps the same man who helped her conquer Dorne after King Vorian, the Sword of the Evening, was put down, or perhaps that was Sir Davos' son or older brother. In any case, though this son was Nymeria's first, he would not inherit his mother's title. A closer look at the timeline here reveals something of interest. King Vorian Dane, Sword of the Evening, was in power at the start of this Dornish unification process. But by the end, he's out of the picture, of course. And instead, there's this Sir Davos Dane, Sword of the Morning. So the point being, Davos may have been a young man before King Vorian was sent to the Wall. He may not have been born, but I think he probably was. It's almost a certainty, in fact, that they were alive at the same time. So remember that Davos was Nymeria's third husband, and since they had a child together, we know she was still within her childbearing years, obviously. Given Nymeria's extraordinary full life, recapping real quick, years of looking for a new home, of course, all her upbringing uh, along the Rhoyne as well. Then there's several years conquering parts of Dorne to face the Ironwoods. Then there's actually nine years of fighting the Ironwoods. Then there's this second husband somewhere in the mix. So I gotta wonder, did, did Nymeria meet Davos when he was still very young? Still married while she was married to Moors, still? That certainly seems possible. Uh, or Lord Uller. And imagine King Vorian being defeated and captured. What happened with Dawn during all this? Was it taken from Vorian and given to Davos right away because he was all along the more worthy knight? Was this correcting some wrong? Were the Danes of the time thinking that Sir Davos was the one who truly deserved it? And this whole Sword of the Evening nickname was. Uh, a way to indicate that Sir Davos, or rather King Vorian was kind of a bad guy, that he wasn't truly worthy, and Sir Davos was. So that creates an interesting potential scenario that by setting down King Vorian, they may, Nymeria and Moors may have corrected some old wrong by deposing a man who wasn't truly worthy of wielding Dawn. That's entirely possible. Yeah, you, you raised some interesting points there. I mean, I have to think... If he had been, if the Vorian Dane had been in possession of Dawn, then he should have been called Sword of the Morning if he had it legitimately. So that means maybe he stole it or maybe he didn't have it. Definitely. Um, and whether the Sword of the Evening moniker definitely implies some sort of sinister character or perhaps deficiency of character. And I can't help but think maybe it's a parallel to Darkstar, who is of the night, of course, and then uh, young Edric as a parallel to Davos. So you've got a, an older, evening-associated Dane, and then a younger, you know, more noble character. It makes you wonder, did Vorian Dane steal Dawn, like we think uh, Darkstar is going to? Or perhaps is Edric on the way for Sword of the Morning status, like Davos? Yeah, those are all very good possibilities. Some of those that we discussed in Dane Part 1, so go back to that if you need to recap. But... 
I had the thought that maybe it was something simple. I always try to look for the mundane explanations because a lot of, you know, if you're familiar with the concept of Occam's razor, a lot of times the most simple explanation is the true one. But in this, so in this case, I thought maybe, well, maybe it's just because the dude had black hair and they just gave him that nickname because he had dark hair and dark eyes. However, there's a big flaw with that concept, which is that the dark hair, dark eyes mostly comes, at least uh, we're told, that genetic influence is the Roynish. And Vorian, this is, we're talking about the arrival of the Roynar, so Vorian's not going to have that blood in him. So I like the he was a bad guy explanation that he was clearly a great fighter or that explains how he was able to hold power at least it partially explains it and he may have been the firstborn son he may have inherited the lord the lordship or the, the at the time it would have been the crown the crown of starfall whatever that was called so a lot of possibilities there i, I wonder also if this was something that this this whole incident this these this this series of incidents perhaps we can call it was something that led towards the first sparks romantically between Sir Davos and Nymeria. Maybe it was a catalyst to their marriage many years later. Maybe George is leaving himself uh, room for a little short story that he can write. It does sound pretty dramatic. Yeah, that would be a great short story to read. I'd love it. If, if not, maybe, maybe 50 years from now, someone will write it as fan fiction <laughs> when it's legal to do that. <laughs> you know, we should published. also look at... We should also look at the um, uh, possibility that he was called Sword of the Evening after he lost. Maybe he was just on the wrong side of history. He got sent to the wall, and so that's a disgrace, and therefore he was remembered as the Sword of the Evening. That's a really good point. I hadn't considered that. And, for, and it's, it's one of those things, you know, guys, you guys don't realize this from listening to, listening to the show on your end. We occasionally have ideas like that while we're recording. That's a fresh idea. It's not in the script. Boom. Just I like just that. thought of that. I just thought of that. He just thought of that. Yeah, that's right. So... Fun stuff. So, what do you think? What what would happen if Vorian never got put down? What do you think? Anything would be different there? He we would. Uh, uh, I don't know. Maybe he would have bathed uh, the sword dawn in blood and dishonored <laughs> it or something. Who knows? Yeah, maybe Sir Davos would never have emerged from his shadow. Shall we say? <laughs> <laughs> So perhaps it was said afterwards. Remember, this is pure speculation, but it, it fits so nicely that I, that I give it maybe extra credit than it should. It was perhaps it was said afterwards that the light from Nymeria's son of Dorne was tra transfixed by the Martell spear is what brought Dawn back to Starfall. Hmm. Very nice. Anyway, literally and figuratively. So let's let's move on to these bloodlines, which we've we've introduced the Roinar and how they fit in. So let's talk about the modern concepts of what led to the, the designations of stony, sandy, and salty Dornishmen and how the Danes fit into all that. Bloodlines are an important thing. As we said earlier, the melting pot of Dorn is kind of how we, we think of it now, but this is the final step. The final ingredient in that mix was this Roynish blood. So here we are. When Morris Martell took Nymeria to wife, hundreds of his knights, squires, and lords bannermen also wed Roynish women. And many of those who were already wed took them for their paramours. Now, we're also told that since a huge percentage of the Roynish men were killed before Nymeria led her people away in flight, so four in five of the newcomers were women. 80% of the Roynar refugees were female. So even, with all these <laughs> so even with all these marriages to the Martells and their vassals, more of these women married into other Dornish houses as they came under the sway of sun and spear. So that explains why there was this massive influx of Rhoynish blood and shows how it worked. But the interesting thing there is how little or maybe how more it didn't affect the, the Danes. Because 
The stony Dornishmen have the least Roynish blood, but we'll get to that in a minute. Well, so hold on a second now. When thousands <laughs> of single Roynar warrior women showed up on the beach in, uh, you know, by uh, uh, Sunspear, was this like the greatest day ever in Dornish history or what? I mean, it's like, <laughs> hey, everybody, come down to the beach. There's a bunch of women on boats. They're just arriving. Just <laughs> all boatloads of them. Like, what the hell is happening? It's is like awesome. Dornish, Dornish spring break. Right. <laughs> So this is the this is where we come back to the whole dark eyed dark hair thing. This is a Roynish right. influence thing, and so maybe you could say Darkstar has some of that because he's got a little black hair. I mean that could come from somewhere else, but uh, you can see. But the potential for the Roynish influence there, uh, but it, it doesn't look like there's a lot of Roynish blood in the Dane line because the Stony Dornish have the least of the Roynish blood. They have the most variety of light hair colors and they're more likely to have blue or non just not dark colored eyes obviously the danes have the purple eyes and the fowlers are known for having blue eyes i believe or at least no they have blonde hair and the, the ironwoods are known for having blue eyes i believe is how it works so there and those are all houses in the red mountains you can see how there's a stony dornishman or at least near the red mountains have this I don't say pure bloodline, but it's less Roynish. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, there's nothing more pure about it. The Andal blood isn't purer than the Roynish blood. It's just a, those are just different blood types. So, while there's probably not a lot of Roynar in the Dane line, there's possibly one very important one. When at last she died, it was the eldest of her four daughters by Mors Martel who succeeded her, not her son by Davos Dane. For by then, the Dornish had come to adopt many of the laws and customs of the Roynar. So this son, with Sir Davos Dane, may have become the next Lord of Starfall. Sir Davos himself may have eventually inherited. We don't know what he was. He may have been the heir. He may have been a cousin. We don't know. But if it, if he, if it wasn't continued through his line, if he wasn't the lordly line, then things are a little different. But even if he wasn't, if he was, then we're looking at something really cool. We're looking at the Danes having Nymeria as an ancestor. That's really neat. And even if she, even if that's not how it worked, even if the line continued through one of these cadet Danes, or if Sir Davos wasn't in the main line, that was probably really confusing, but <laughs> stick with me. <laughs> if, even if the line was separate, Nymeria's line within the Danes was separate, you could see a situation like what happened with the Starks or the Lannisters, all these houses where they marry their own first cousin. I mean, you would, they would want to have Nymeria's blood in there. Yeah, I mean, there's no know, question. Family. Sorry, Aziz, there's no question that the, the son of Davos and Nymeria would be a very eligible bachelor and somebody that could make a very powerful marriage alliance. That's right. Yeah, so, and it's, it's something, you know, you, you want that as a feather in your cap to say, hey, we trace our descent to Nymeria herself. It's something to bring up at parties, especially with those snooty Corgiles are around. You can hold it over them. <laughs> and you know what they say about Corgile parties? You never want to pass out in one of the guest beds, because you might wake up <laughs> with scorpions dropping from the ceiling, particularly if your last name is Tyrell. But uh, kidding aside, it is an interesting speculation. I mean, perhaps that's where the dark hair in House Dane comes from. Mashara had darker hair, and like you said, Dark Star's got the midnight streak. Yeah, and there's so many Danes whose hair color we don't know at all. We don't even, like we said, like Ashea said in the last episode, we don't even know what color Arthur's hair was. So can we make more um, day-night puns here? Because we've got the influence of the sun, the Roynish sun, bringing black hair. So, what's up with that? <laughs> well, I'm never going to tell someone that they shouldn't be making puns. That would be 
rather hypocritical of me, I'd say. Well, George named the white Weirwood Gate the Black Gate, so <laughs> I don't know. That's confusing. That's true. That's, he, likes to, he likes to mess with us that way, doesn't he? Now, he has said himself, George, that is, in an old Sospeck Martin, that a few stony Dornish houses may still follow Andal-style primogeniture, like most of Westeros does. Now, we don't actually have any examples of that. He said maybe, and this was a long time ago. This quote, I think, is from 1999, so he may have changed his mind. But if that's accurate, if there are houses in Dorne that don't follow the Dornish style of inheritance where women can inherit, there's a good reason why the Danes might be one of those exceptions. So check this out. The Danes are stony Dornish, so that part already checks out. They are also extremely ancient, and here's why they might be upset and why not why they might not have wanted to go with this new law of allowing women to inherit, which is that Davos Dane's son did not succeed Nymeria. It was one of her, it was her eldest child, which was a daughter of Mars Martell. So if, but if, so you got to wonder, was there any kind of to do about that? Was, were the Danes kind of angling for this son to become the, the Prince of Dorne, despite the Rhoynish inheritance customs? Possibly a little mini Dance of the Dragons without dragons, Dance of the Danes, something like that, where one party favors the female claimant while, you know, some of the traditionalists or allies of the Danes, because they're just, you know, self-serving in this case, want the inheritance to be a male. Yeah, if there was, it probably would have been some kind of cloak and dagger, you know, Dornish poison and knives kind of thing. I, I figure if it had been actual battle, we would have heard about it. And if you think about it, the the female le- uh, the female faction in Sunspear was probably quite a bit stronger. I mean, perhaps prohibitively so when you consider that Nymeria seems like the type to make sure the succession went smoothly after her death, and she ruled for a long time. She had a huge uh, influence on Dornish culture. There was a huge infusion of Rhoynish culture. So I'm not sure there would have been many outside of Starfall who would be really agitating for a civil war. But the Dornish are stubborn, as we know, and so perhaps there was some sort of, you know, under-the-scenes political tension there. Whatever the case, Nymeria seems to have been a serious political force, because we can see that the Rhoynish customs were imprinted on Dorne as a nation, which she herself forged. And as you uh, mentioned briefly, the full house name of House Martell is Nymeros Martell, um, both... Uh, Lewin Martell and Oberyn the Red Viper both have Nymeros as their middle name, but it's actually not the middle name. It's Nymeros Martell as the house name. Right. It's always just shortened to Martell right. because it's simpler that way, I suppose. Now, Sexism. <laughs> yep. <laughs> a Dornish civil war sounds like it would be a really nasty thing, considering you know how nasty the Dornish are and how they aren't, they aren't big on surrendering and they're, they are big on being stubborn. And but we and as, and, and I, though I largely agree with what you're saying about the, the chance that it was more of an intriguey kind of war rather than a you know straight up armies facing each other, we are told that Nymeria did put down two rebellions during her time. This could be one of them. So, although probably maybe not though because this would have happened when she died, not during her life. But still, possibilities. Very interesting. So from here on. This time period of the coming of the Rhoynar and Nymeria's reign, from this point out until the coming of Aegon the Conqueror himself, we don't really have anything on the Danes. So we're going to jump forward in time to that time period. We're moving on to what's called, we've entitled Part 3, Starfall in Flames. A quick reminder, 
to do your Amazon shopping through historyofwesteros.com. Anything you buy through there, any of the links you follow will track back to us. We'll get credit and you will not spend any more than you would have if you shop normal way. So good way to help the show and get yourself some cool stuff without spending any extra money. Highly recommend a non-Game of Thrones thing. I like to occasionally recommend a book. I've been, I'm a big fan of the Accursed King series, which is the, written by Maurice Druon and George R. R. Martin himself, calls it the original Game of Thrones. The character development isn't on par with, with uh, George's work, but the intrigue is awesome. It's historical fiction set in the 14th century, 13th century? Anyway, great series, Maurice Druon. Check it out through Amazon or through Audible. And onward. Part 3, Starfall in Flames. The first Dornish War is the name given to the conflict that developed as a result of Dorne's non-surrender during the first part of Aegon's conquest. As we know, they ran what was largely a guerrilla campaign and made things tough for the new Cargarian kings and queens. The attacks began around 4 AC, and though much devastation was inflicted, there was nowhere near an equal amount of submission. Being nasty doesn't work? Okay, how about being nastier? Matters escalated and more Dornish seats fell to Dragonfire in 9 AC. The Dornish responded a year later by sending a host under Lord Fowler that seized and burned the great marcher castle of Nightsong and carried off its lords and defenders as hostages, whilst another army, under Ser Joffrey Dane, marched to the very walls of Old Town, raising the fields and villages outside it. Hey, there's that Joffrey Dane we were talking about earlier. Now, the Danes may have been used to the protection of their island and may have been very unconcerned with retribution but being, by being out of the reach of many enemies, but dragons! <laughs> Starfall, along with a few others, were burned by dragon flame, probably from Meraxes. Now, dragons tend to breathe flame that is a match for their own color. Meraxes had silver scales and golden eyes. The Palestone Sword Tower, awash in silver flame shot through with gold. Ooh, that sounds spectacular. If it was Balerion, though, black flame on a white tower, that symbolism is overwhelming, right? <laughs> yes, and you're not bringing up flaming swords and symbolism without letting me get in on the action now, are you? By all means. Well, so, fun fact. This is what this reminded me of. When Jamie fell asleep on the Weirwood stump and dreamed of Brienne and he wielding flaming swords under the bowels of Casterly Rock, the flame is described once as silvery, twice as silvery blue, and once as pale flame. The narrative even mentions that the flame took the color of the steel itself, which is interesting when you think about Dawn being a pale stone sword. Perhaps it takes fire with pale flame. And then you've got Oathkeeper with black and red, and black fire is black fire shot through with red. So we're going to talk about sword flame later, obviously. I don't want to go too far into that. But I've always found it tempting to link the pale flame uh, in the couple places that we see to the pale stone of dawn. And you were talking about Meraxes with silver and gold flame. So now you've got the pale stone sword with silver and gold flame. So then you could even have a golden dawn. Oh, nice. Ooh. Empire of the Golden Dawn. Hey, we'll be coming back to that. <laughs> now, there are other castles that were burned as well. And even Merax and even Meraxes and Rhaenys were killed. But that didn't end the war either. It inflamed things. Ha! Can't resist. And by things, I mean castles. A second wave was unleashed. The two years that followed were later called the Years of the Dragon's Wrath. 
grief-stricken at the death of their beloved sister, King Aegon and Queen Visenya set ablaze every castle, keep, and holdfast in Dorne at least once, save for Sunspear in the Shadow City. This is telling us Starfall was burned a second time. Well, damn. <laughs> this time it would have been Balerion and that black flame, for sure, because Meraxes was dead, or Vagar and that, well, we don't know what color she was. Actually, there might be a clue about that in The Princess and the Queen, and this is debatable, but check this out. So Jaceres Valerion called Vagar a hoary old bitch, and hoary means gray or white with age, grayish-white, snowy, etc. So that's pretty cool to think about. If Vagar was gray-white or white, something like that, and then you've got Meraxes, which is silver, you'd have Aegon on his black dragon, and then white and silver dragons flanking him. That's, that's pretty awesome. That is pretty awesome. Now, this second wave of aggression escalated the war, and things got dirtier and more desperate. There were even assassination attempts on both sides. This resulted in the formation of the Kingsguard, which creates a bit of irony. Dornish assassins necessitate the creation of the Kingsguard, and later a Dornishman becomes one of its most famous members of all time, <laughs> Sir Arthur Dane. And right beside him, let's not forget Sir Lewin Martell, a Prince of Dorne himself. Yeah, you wonder if there were other Dornish Kingsguard before them. They're the first we know about. Maybe have been some others, but they may have been the first. Now, soon enough, Aegon gave up the war, the reasons for which are mysterious and could probably have a whole lot of time devoted to them, but it's not the scope of this episode. Regardless, however, these final motivations of Aegon's, whatever they were, peace was established for quite a while. The Danes would have time to repair their castle, maybe paint over that dragon flame, <laughs> replant their fields, whatever they needed to do, maybe make some new Danes. Never can have too many Danelings running around. Right, well, they'd be needed. Um, I mean, how many Danelings does it take to get a sword of the morning? You know, like, what's the ratio? Is it like, it only seems to happen, you know, every generation. So, I mean, yeah. I don't know, is it like... I agree, yeah. It's, you wonder, like, one out, you need 25 Danes to have a... 20% chance that one of them being sword of the morning. <laughs> we don't yeah, know. something. It's a high bar. We have so much more to learn about this. Now, about 145 years later, Aegon's descendant, Daron I, a.k.a. the young dragon, would try again with a new strategy that accounted for the mistakes of the past. So let's see what happened when the Danes were faced with the conquest of Dorne from Daron I. Well, of course, as we know, the conquest of Dorne worked at first, the young dragon saw all of Dorne subjugated, but not for very long. A good bit of the action took place in the Prince's Pass, and as the hot spot nearest to Starfall, any Dane seeing action probably fought there. In other words, the Prince's Pass is the closest action center near to Starfall. So you would expect any Danes involved in the war to have done their fighting there. Not it's the there. it's the local theater to make uh, beefish happy. He's <laughs> a military word. That's right, exactly. Got to keep our military terms straight. Now, consider the possibility of a Sword of the Morning during this era. That would be an interesting tale, getting a Sword of the Morning, getting to fight in a war where his country is going to be subjugated. Could this mysterious, semi-mysterious, we'll call him, Ulrich Dane, mentioned by Sir Eustace Osgray in the Sworn Sword, Duncan Egg tale, he's mentioned as a wielder of dawn and a Sword of the Morning. Could he have been a man who fought in this war? It's possible. We don't know when Sir Ulrich lived, but we are very confident he was a contemporary of Sir Eustace. So 
He named warriors, when he was naming warriors he thought were great and comparing them to Damon Blackfire, he named Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, who died before Damon even had the name Blackfire. So we needn't assume that Ulrich was a contemporary of Damon, though he could have been. The Conquest of Dorne is the next closest major event that would have happened during Eustace's life that involved lots of fighting. So it's a decent possibility that this is how Ulrich made a name for himself. Uh, so Aemon the Dragon Knight fought in it for sure as well, so that's another good comparison. But whether or not this is the right time frame for his life or not, Ulrich is mentioned in some rather lofty company, and since we're focusing on the Danes, that's a good thing to mention. Now, one other thing is that since George is a gardener, it could be that he's just sort of writing himself a little wild card. Like, he didn't say when this guy lived. It's just, you know, sometime in the future he'll have a need for a sword of the morning, say, I don't know, 80 or 180 years ago or whatever, and he'd just be like, oh, yeah, Ulrich Dane. Yeah, it was him. Exactly. You get you get <laughs> the choices. He leaves himself options, yeah. Now, if Ulrich indeed did fight in this war, if our guess is correct, another question comes up. Sword of the Morning is supposed to be honorable, at least as far as we know nowadays. And from what we're told, it's always been. We speculated on whether that's entirely accurate, but it seems to be, so we'll, we'll, we'll say that it is. So when King Daron was slain, which was under a peace banner, right, under a truce, would Ulrich, a Sword of the Morning, stand for that? Would he be part of, you know, a dirty trick like that? Well... Arthur Dane is our model sort of the morning, as best as we can say. So it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking they were all like him. The sword of the morning happened to be a fierce Dornish patriot, someone fighting for independence, a lover of that. He might see this as a necessary evil. He's like, yeah, well, you know, it's it's dishonorable, but we got to do it. Or if he's just ordered to do it, you know, by his commander, then he would just have to do it. Uh, Arthur almost certainly obeyed some heinous orders from, from the Mad King. So if, if he's our, you know, the, if he's the bar that we're setting, then I don't think Ulrich doing this is all that dirty compared to whatever Arthur probably had to do for Ares. Now, also slain alongside Daron during this betrayal. The Dornish wouldn't have seen it that way, but we'll say, we'll call it what it was. While Aemon, this was a, at the same time, several Kingsguard knights were killed while Aemon the Dragon Knight himself was captured. How about that? Remember how it was Dornish assassins that prompted the creation of the Kingsguard? <laughs> well, they weren't good enough <laughs> to stop yes. this. So far, the Kingsguard are about as good at protecting kings as stormtroopers are at, like, hitting anything <laughs> with blasters. <laughs> That's about the effectiveness. All right, so let's move on to the unification of Dorne. Now, there is no indication that there is Targaryen blood in House Dane, but there is uh, definitely a case of the opposite. We're going to talk about the reverse, which is House Dane's marriage to House Targaryen. Mm. King Daron II sought to bind Dorne to the realm with peace, friendship, and marriages. He married his son Baylor Breakspear, to Jenna Dondarrion, and his son Makar to House Dane. Now, funny that in A Song of Ice and Fire, Beric Dondarrion was set to marry Illyria Dane. So the whole thing kind of came full circle there. But in the meantime, this Dane that Prince Makar married was Lady Diana. This is the mother of Egg, Maester Aemon, Arian Brightflame, Daron the Drunkard, as well as the sisters Daella and Rey, who we know a lot less about. Still, that's a lot of Targaryen kids. That's she and Makar produced more children than all of Makar's brothers put together. All three of his brothers had fewer children than this. 
Deanna reminds me of Laura Royce, who we just covered in our Royce episode. A famous member from, an other ho- from another house who married into this family that we're discussing and bore a ton of kids that the current line runs through. That's right, Deanna Dane is the great-great-grandmother of Daenerys herself. This Dane blood should be strong, though, since after Egg, his descendants intermarried. So the blood has been unchanged since his time. Okay, so I actually started a thread about this a couple of years ago, pointing out that because of incest, Danny is actually half Blackwood, one quarter Dane, and one quarter Targaryen. I mean, technically. So I just, I wasn't sure what to think of it, and nobody else really seemed to think much of it. But if you think about it, Blackwood blood can carry the Green Seer gene, and Danny technically could be eligible for Sword of the Morning status because of her Dane blood. And, I mean, she's not a knight, she's not a warrior, but she does have a giant black dragon, which, you know, <laughs> does count for something, I would think. Yeah, she doesn't need a big sword, she's got a big dragon, but hey, she's, uh, it's interesting that she's got that blood. Now, one thing I, I want to say, I was thinking about this, and I meant to mention it before when we were coming up with the script here. I guess she's not actually, by the same standard, she wouldn't be half Blackwood, would she? She'd be a quarter Blackwood and a quarter whatever whatever uh well okay so using the same logic of saying that that you know half dane a quarter dane a quarter targaryen it would be a quarter blackwood and a quarter whatever else uh betha's whatever betha's other parent was well rainy's targaryen can can correct us if we're wrong but what what i think we're looking at is egg married blackwood betha blackwood right their children excuse me would be half blackwood and half targaryen sure those two children had incest. No, that, that part from, I agree with. And, I'm just saying And that, then their children had incest. Yeah. And then their children had incest. So they were all 50% Blackwood that whole time. Right. They all carried down. It's, it's the exact same. Whatever genetics passed on by Betha Blackwood and Egg were, are, are the exact right. same and, and egg, proportions that have been passed right, on. Right. And yeah. Egg was half Dane and half Targaryen. Yeah. So that's where I get, I get the makeup. You get the Targaryen side is half Dane, and then there's half Blackwood, and then it just gets passed down right. through incest. What so, I'm saying is that she wouldn't be half Blackwood by that standard. Because if you're saying, if you're dividing Egg's blood into his Targaryen and Dane halves, then, then you have to do the same for Betha. She's half Blackwood. Oh, sure. Half something else. We just don't know what that other half is. But true, true. we can assume that it's not an incest situation. <laughs> well, <laughs> not before. we don't want to turn. Well, OK, so now we don't want to turn this into other podcasts that, you know, go <laughs> real heavy in the genetics direction. But my point was just simply that there is some Blackwood blood in there and there's some Dane blood in Definitely. there. And you just have to wonder, those are both important houses. Is Martin going to pull that out and show us that? you know, that that matters, that Danny can access, you know, green seer or skin changer magic. And maybe that's, that helped her wake the dragons or something. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree. It's definitely, I think it could very well come up. I don't think it's an accident that he decided to go ahead and make a Dane ancestor for Danny. A one right. that's pretty darn close to, to, uh, you know, the current storyline, especially the bloodline. So well-preserved. So a lot of coolness there. Now, Dunk and Egg themselves, they took a trip to Dorne in between the Hedge Knight and the Sworn Sword. Although from the sound of it, they didn't go to Starfall. But it's, it's very vague where they went. So it's possible they did. But we don't know for sure. It'd be cool if they did. Another facet of this, Makar did become king eventually, as we know. But there was never a Dane queen because she died before the Hedge Knight. I mean, before we even see Egg for the first time, Diana died. So she died 
fairly young, although she had all those kids first. So it was kind of one of maybe she just died exhausted. Maybe she died giving, you know, with having with the last child there. Something along those lines. Yeah. Although, yeah, because we don't hear that. Egg, Egg would have been... I guess Egg's not the, the one of the sisters. I think is younger, so maybe it's it is possible, but it wouldn't have been that Egg wouldn't have been the one she died birthing. But Egg was like nine, so she yeah. you know she could have died when he was five or six or something. And absolutely, which is too bad. We could have had a Dane queen. <laughs> but again, there's an example of the architecture working at the gardening working for for George. He didn't ever say who. Egg's mother was just that she died early. So he got to later decide, hey, you know what? Let's make her a Dane. That's cool. <laughs> I mean, he may have had that in mind all along and just never specified it. But hey, now we're finding out. And it's all good. All right. He's, he's really good at <clears throat> weaving things into his gardening style to the point where you, you can't tell if, if it's something that he's had in mind or if it's something he just pulled in. It's true. Yeah, it, it opens up lots of possibilities. Now, speaking of open up, opening up possibilities... This, this Dane influence at court. Maybe this is what opened the door for Arthur Dane coming along later. The, the, the sort of a, a networking opportunity for House Dane and the Targaryens. The royal family, they have, a, you know, they have a history together now. So it might make a little more sense for them to look for allies in this family that's basically their grandparents. You know, it's a grandparent relationship at that point. It definitely had to help. Whether it was the main thing, I'm very confident that it was important. But it sounds like Arthur was so outstanding that perhaps this was his destiny, so to speak, one way or the other. Got to think that's a possibility as well. Uh, so as we detailed in our Blackfire Rebellion series, the Danes were almost certainly loyal to King Daron the Good during the rebellions due to this marriage of Dane and Targaryen and the Dane blood that became a part of the royal family. So if Back to guessing about Ulrich Dane. Let's say he was a contemporary of Damon Blackfire after all. There's a quite a chance that he would have found himself fighting in the host of Prince Makar, standing alongside his Kindiana's husband, keeping him alive and helping him, you know, make a name for himself. Makar commanded the rear. So uh, that's, a, that's which is a notable detail. But it's also possible he was with Baylor Breakspear because Baylor is the one who is said to have led the main Dornish loyalist contingent with him. A couple possibilities there. Oh, you know what, Aziz? That, that makes me wonder if we won't see Ulrich Dane or hear about him in one of the remaining Duncan Egg books. Oh, good possibility. You know, I should have thought of that. It's a great possibility. Uh, and I, now that you mention it, well, I'm all of a sudden hoping for it. <laughs> I mean, even just a mention, you know? Yeah. Okay, so that's part three, and we'll move on to part four now. Part four, the Sword of the Morning. Though many houses have heirloom swords, they mostly pass the blade down from lord to lord. Some, such as the Corbrays have done, may lend the blade to a son or brother for his lifetime, only to have it returned to the lord. But that is not the way of House Dane. The wielder of dawn is always given the title of Sword of the Morning and only a knight of House Dane who is deemed worthy can wield it. For this reason, the Swords of the Morning are all famous throughout the Seven Kingdoms. There are boys who secretly dream of being a son of Starfall, so they might claim that storied sword and its title. Most famous of all was Sir Arthur Dane. Let's talk about the qualifications for Sword of the Morning. It's it's a kind of an ongoing out there mystery that really there's not a lot of answers for, but there's a lot of curiosity regarding it. 
kind of the impression we have that is a worthy candidate can be declared sword of the morning. And, and our, uh, what we mean by what we ex believe that means worthy is chivalrous, knightly, honorable, and a great fighter. Th that's the basics. But it raises a, a bigger question, right? Who makes the call? Who makes that decision? There's not like a council of Danes, is there? Or maybe there is. Who decides when a knight is worthy enough to wield it? Is it just, could it be as simpler than we think? Maybe if you're big and strong enough to wield this six foot long greatsword, then there you go. Uh, is it, even though it's lighter than a normal greatsword, you know, I, I do think there's more to it than that, but it's possible it's simpler than we think. Uh, there's also an implication of skill, of course, you don't, being big and strong enough, you know, that's, that wouldn't describe Arthur Dane. He's probably big and strong. Well, definitely strong, probably kind of big, certainly extremely skillful. There's also a, a worthiness of character that's implied too, I think, as we're given with Arthur Dane. So it's, I, th I think it's really all, you know, all around. You really have to be, well, okay, look, let me just put it this way. This is, this is what I imagine. The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft from the bosom of the water Excalibur, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, am to be the sword of the morning. Right? So the that's, that's exactly how it went. Yeah, I think, I think the Holy Grail was a fan fiction scene dedicated to Game of Thrones, which hadn't been written yet. But, but sure. uh, yeah, I mean, kidding, kidding aside, though, um, obviously there is a lot of Arthurian influence in A Song of Ice and Fire, as Lady Gwyn will tell us. And uh, perhaps there's a more mundane version of this. Like, maybe, maybe it's just the women of House Dane who decide. So it's not a lady in the lake, but, you know, maybe there's a female component of the choosing. Regardless of how the choosing is supposed to be done, what's to stop some dirtbag Lord of Starfall or Darkstar, for example, from just taking it, you know, just by force? I don't, if it's a group of ladies, well, I don't imagine they can stop Darkstar. If it's, you know, if there's some people assigned to guard it, you know, if there's some, some sort of guardians of the blade, I don't know, uh, that would make it a lot more difficult. And of course, there's the challenge of getting inside Starfall in the first place. But really... I'm not sure that it, in, the, in the whole history of Dawn, I have to think that it's been absconded a few times by non-worthy people and, and who would be able to stop them if they're, if they're tough enough and strong enough to just take it. They're probably going to hang on to it for a while until someone can come take it back from them. And hey, if they're big and strong and, and tough enough to take it in the first place, well, all of a sudden they're more well-armed. It's going to be harder to stop them <laughs> from that point on. Yeah, um, I mean, as far as who can, who would be... Uh to stop somebody from stealing it. I think the castle guard at Starfall might have something to say about that, perhaps. We don't know, we don't know how Definitely. big it was, but, you know. But the thing is, okay, here's the thing about Darkstar, though. I mean, he might show up to Starfall, and they might not necessarily bar the gates to him. They might very well be like, hey, it's Cousin Gerald, open up the doors. And then you have Darkstar mm -hmm. inside, perhaps breaking guest right, kin slaying. I mean, that's the kind of stuff he would do. He, we've already seen that he's willing to kill innocent children in order to achieve a political end. Yeah, and if he's going to go that far, why not go farther? Why not arm himself well? <laughs> if he's already an outlaw, in a sense, the, the, the ruling prince of Dorne already wants to see him dead, probably. It's not going to make things worse for him if he takes Dawn. He's not going to put a bigger target on his head if he does that. No, he, he doesn't seem to give an F, really. Mm, yeah, I gotta agree. So we discussed the five-year gap last time and how it might have necessitated the creation of... Uh, the character Darkstar in the first place as a means of getting Dawn out of Starfall. Now, uh, Edric Dane, aged up five years, seems like someone who might have been able to, de to be declared a worthy Sword of the Morning. So after the five-year gap was ditched, 
Why did George introduce a character so singularly unworthy of wielding Dawn as Dark Star, if indeed the purpose was to replace an aged-up Edric Dane? We touched on this briefly last time, but I think it deserves a little more attention. Uh, I think we have the answer that makes the most sense. Uh, LML and I have discussed it a few times now. Of course, that's a big part of our process in general, is before we record, before we write a lot of things down, we just kind of talk it out and, and, and figure out what the good ideas are and, and roll with them. So let's think about that now. Is... Our idea, basically, is that Edric was only ever intended to get the, role, the sword out of Starfall in the first place. That was kind of his narrative purpose. He's too ancillary of a character to really play a key role in the War for the Dawn anyway. Like, he's, he's cool, people have noticed him, but people have only noticed him because we all pay attention so much. If you're a casual reader, Edric Dane, that name, might, you might be like, who? Wait, who was that guy again? I don't think a lot of you out there are casual readers, but that just that just drives the point home. You all know who Edric Dane is, but would George write such a minor character having such a major role? Eh, that's a bit of a stretch. Yeah, no, I mean, it was cool that we didn't actually get Rob's POV. You know, we got to see around the, the fringes of Rob, and Rob is the character who, in a traditional fantasy story, would definitely be a main character. He's the, the heir to Ned, and he's the young king. But instead, we got these sort of side views of Rob. But I don't think that we're going to be getting side views of the Sword of the Morning defeating the others. Like, yeah, there was this, some kid named Edric. He had the dawn, and he did some <laughs> stuff. But, well, you know, he didn't well, didn't really get his POV. Uh, no, I mean, if somebody's going to wield dawn in any sort of meaningful way, it would have to be a character that we know and have a little bit of attachment to. So I'm thinking that most likely... Like you're saying, the original plan would have been for Edric to be named Sword of the Morning for a time, only to suffer a signature George R.R. R. Martin tragic death, pass Dawn along to a main character that we care about a little more. And if Darkstar does steal it, he could very well follow the same course, wielding it for a time as a sort of cruel mockery of Arthur Dane, even perhaps in the Kingsguard of the fake Son of Rhaegar, for that matter. You know, the fake Sword of the Morning, fake Son of Rhaegar. That's and then, <laughs> yeah, and then basically, at some point, someone's going to kill Darkstar, and the sword will get into somebody else's hands. And so then, this, who knows? Right, and this would explain why George could swap out a noble boy for a dastardly fiend. If if the job is only to temporarily wield Dawn, then either one does a job. Yeah, as long as it, yeah, the job. If the if the point is to get the sword out there into play, so to speak, all you need is a Dane for it, and that is why the the point I brought up last time was that. It, that's why Darkstar is a Dane and not... It could have been anything. He could have been an Uller. He could have been a right. Blackmont. It, it didn't matter what house he was, but right. the fact that he's a Dane is really significant. We did a poll on Twitter asking people who they thought was going to be the next wielder of Dawn. 20, it was really close, by the way. Hmm. It was a virtual tie. For 27% of the vote went to John and 27% went to Edric. The poll, the Twitter said the winner was John, so I suppose he was higher by percentage points. 27% also picked nobody or unnamed character. So it was basically a three-way tie. And then Darkstar came in third at 19%. So there you go. That's what the fandom thinks. Of course, only George's opinion really matters. But that just gives you an idea where people, people's heads are out there, which is to say that there is no consensus. It's very, very divided. Lots of good guesses out there. And I think all these guesses have valid backing to them. But personally, I think... Dark Star, followed by John or somebody else. We'll see how that prediction goes when the time comes. Let's talk about historical Swords of the Morning and Swords of the Evening. 
Now, on our episodes focusing specifically on noble houses of Westeros, we've tried to find archetypal traits of each house. For example, House Royce, which we did recently, is consistently manifesting traits of steadfastness, loyalty, warrior skills, devotion, stubbornness, these kind of things. House Dane, as we saw last time, seems to have this extreme dichotomy between noble white knights like Arthur, dastardly fiends like Darkstar. There seems to be like a day-night, morning-evening thing going on here within the house, almost as if the Sword of the Evening was a tradition paralleling the Sword of the Morning, which is bestowed on the sorts of gigantic a-holes, which which only come around once in a blue moon, perhaps even less (laughs) often than worthy Swords of the Morning. All right, so let's take a look at these two categories of notable Danes. First, the Swords of the Morning, of whom we are told, uh, let's see, there are only three named for sure. So, Aziz, go ahead and read those. Arthur Dane, of course, we spoke about at length already. He's a paragon of virtue, fearsome warrior from all appearances, etc. We know that story pretty well by now. Then there was Davos Dane, who we covered in this episode. He's the third husband of Nymeria. He was a sword of the morning, described as dashing, in addition to his presumed qualities of nobility and valor, which would qualify him as a sword of the morning. He married Nymeria, arguably the most badass woman who ever lived, so Mm -hmm. that's not bad. And then Ulrich, who we tried to place in the timeline, uh, made some guesses there, and his swordsmanship was compared to Damon Blackfire, who we've also covered at length, and I don't need to tell you that he was an incredible badass as well. All right, now, uh, LML, tell us about the Swords of the Evening, for lack of a better term in some cases. All right, well, we've got Gerald Darkstar Dane, who we've talked about a bit. He's of the night. He's a giant dickhead, and his hobbies include killing children or maiming children, fomenting war and strife, and perhaps stealing magic swords. He's called the most dangerous man in Dorne, so he's not just a jerk. He's definitely someone to be, you know, to be reckoned with. Uh, then we've got Vorian Dane, who was actually called the Sword of the Evening. We mentioned him already. Uh, he was also called the greatest knight in all of Dorne, which sounds a little bit like the most dangerous man in all of Dorne. Very similar. Uh, he fought in Imeria and was sent to the Wall in Golden Feathers, uh, Fetters, as we talked about. <laughs> Golden Feathers, that'd be cool. <laughs> New more glory. Yeah, he's Zal- that's more like Jalabar Joe, huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and then as a member of the Night's Watch, he would have worn black as well, which kind of just adds to his general evening darkness imagery. And then the third one is kind of a maybe, a Samuel Day in the Starfire. He's famous for sacking and burning Old Town. Um, that's not obviously dastardly as killing children, uh, and he's not clearly associated with the evening, but Old Town is the most advanced and learned city in all of Westeros, so burning it is kind of rotten. And uh, a lot of innocent women and children probably died if he actually burned the whole city. And Samwell was not called the Sword of the Morning. So he might even be a good candidate for someone who may have used Dawn without being worthy. Yeah, he had a big nickname. He had great deeds. He's definitely a guy that... Why would he... Like, a guy like that, like, why would he j- obey the rules of Sword of the Morning if he's, a, you know, a dirty, greedy guy? Uh, I just don't see how that would happen. It doesn't seem realistic. Unless there's just some actual magic component that prevents that from happening, which seems kind of unlikely given the type of fantasy elements, the kind of magic that exists in this world. It doesn't really seem like that's the kind of thing that we're faced with, but it is possible. Well, think about this. Uh, He led led a war party to sack Old Town, which is basically a feat of great prowess, but he was not called the Sword of the Morning. So you could almost just ask, well, why wasn't he Sword of the Morning? He was a great warrior Dane, but... You know, for some reason he wasn't. So maybe he was deficient in character or maybe that sack of Old Town was not a very honorable deed. Good point. 
All right, so let's let's look at this as from a meta perspective. The question here is, why did Martin do this? Why did he write it this way? Well, the answer might be found with some of the mythical astronomy stuff that LML that you like to talk about in particular. It's of course it relates to your screen name as well, which is Lucifer means Lightbringer. So let's tie all that together. Go ahead. Let's all unle right. unleash you on on everyone here. Let me get my uh, my, my bow out so I can uh, get tight. It's all tied up. <laughs> and uh, make a nice gift to everyone. So basically, by naming the sword Dawn and the office the Sword of the Morning, George is making a clear allusion to Venus, the Morning Star, which is also the Even Star. He's also tapping into the rich mythology associated with Venus uh, and looking at the nighttime sky with the naked eye, planets appear to be stars. And I mentioned this earlier. And Venus is actually the brightest star in the sky. It's brighter than all the other stars. Now, because it's a planet... It doesn't move with the backdrop of all the other stars. And because it's close to the sun, closer to the sun than Earth, rather, it acts in a very unique and peculiar fashion from the standpoint of an observer on Earth. And this is the important thing, how Venus looks to the person standing on Earth. So every 220 days or so, it switches positions. It goes from being the first star to rise in the evening, when it's called the even star, to being the last star to rise right before the sun does, and that's when it's called the morning star. There's also a few days of downtime in between when Venus is either in front or behind the sun relative to Earth. Uh, Venus acts this way also, or Mercury rather, acts this way too, but it's smaller, much harder to see, so we won't talk about Mercury. Sorry, Mercury. We also won't talk about Tarth, even though you mentioned the even star. That's, that's not a comparison that I'm sure that comes to mind when you hear people hear even star, you think of Lord of Tarth. Well, there's, their hero is Galadin of Morn. So there's a morning even star thing there going too, but we'll have to probably address that on a separate yeah, uh, separate uh, time. That sounds cool, but yeah, let's let's try. Oh, to there's stay a on thousand topic. morning star even star <laughs> dichotomies laying around that I could get lost in. Yeah, but the we, point we is got lost that, so much just just preparing this episode. <laughs> uh, if, if you all if you all only knew. <laughs> so you've got this bright star in the sky, and it's either the morning star or the even star. It switches every two hundred or some days. This is a very unique behavior that Venus exhibits. And so it led it to be the focal point of many, many myths of heroes who come from heaven to earth, die, and then are reborn as some kind of lord or the afterlife or the underworld, just as Venus goes from morning star to even star. So the idea is when it, when it becomes the even star, it's then died and then been resurrected, and now it's lord of the underworld. And uh, deities that people might recognize that fall in this category would be Quetzalcoatl, Osiris, Jesus and Lucifer uh, are, you know, and then if there's many others, but those are some of the well-known ones. And that means that both Lucifer and Jesus are actually morning star deities, and the Bible refers to both as the morning star in different places. And that's because both of these figures are actually, in part, participating in this larger mythological archetype based on the morning star even though Jesus and Lucifer have a few obvious differences. <laughs> they, both, they both descend from heaven and then become lords of the afterlife in, in some fashion. So, uh, so some people even correlated those few days when Venus was in front or behind the sun to the actual time when this deity was dead, sort of laying in awaiting resurrection, if you will. Um, Quetzalcoatl myth in particular has these periods mapped out very, very precisely down to the day. You would also, another interesting thing about this comparison, I'm sure maybe I'll, you, you maybe got a few people to think about it, by the way you mentioned it, someone who is dead and then resurrected and becomes Lord of the Dead. Well, think of Jon Snow and, and the whole possibility that he's some sort of Night's King parallel, and you see how this 
is already playing out in another way. So this kind of just gives more evidence that George is thinking along these lines, at least a little bit, if not more. And also, I got to say, that sounds a bit like Danny seeing the Red Comet as the first star in the night when she burned Khal Drogo and mm. when the dragons awoke, all that. So, and the Dothraki, they do believe that the calls become stars when they die. So that's even another right. connection. No, that's exactly right. We see the first star in the evening signaling a kind of resurrection ceremony. Danny herself dies and is resurrected, reborn in a fashion. And then Drogo is reborn as a Cal in the Nightlands during that ceremony. And, and the Cal of the Nightlands is just another way of saying king of the afterlife. So it's definitely uh, a case of George using all of these ideas in his myth. Now, uh, there's another great example of, uh, of this uh, phenomenon when you just think about the entire concept of Azor High Reborn in general. I mean, what is the idea of Azor High Reborn? It's a resurrected solar king, essentially. So uh, now, okay, so when Venus is in the morning star position, and this is where the Lucifer means lightbringer part comes in, the Greeks called it Eosphorus, which is another form of the word phosphorus, and the Romans called Venus Lucifer. So the word Lucifer is really just the Latin word for Venus when it's in the morning star position, which is not quite as scary as king of hell, but it all depends on your myth, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's not quite as scary when you put it that way. <laughs> so, so really, um, then, you know, when you think of, uh, I mean, I guess you shouldn't be scared of mythological creatures anyways. I mean, you might as well say that the old Marvel character, Lucifer Morningstar is the devil. <laughs> He's hard to think of, 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 Anything from a comic or cartoon is, is, is that intimidating, but yeah. <laughs> well, it, it just, it's interesting because the same mythological archetype can manifest as Jesus or Lucifer, and they both have actually similar themes, even though they come out as, you know, evil and good, ap- according to the mythology. And it makes you think about the Night's King and Azor High and various heroes that we hear of that may be undead or resurrected. And there's a question of, well, was this guy a good guy, a bad guy, or something in between? And that's exactly the right question we should be asking. So now, as my name suggests, Lucifer doesn't just mean morning star. It also means light bringer, as well as dawn bringer, shining one, and son of the morning. And this is because Venus is the bright star that heralds the dawn. So it appears just before dawn, low in the horizon, signaling the coming of the sun. And therefore, it's called the light bringer or the dawn bringer. Now, it, it, uh, obviously, the word Lightbringer jumps out to us, and Son of the Morning is pretty damn close to Sword of the Morning. And, of course, you can't help but think of the sword if it's, a, if it's a, you know, the, the vanguard of fighting against the knight, then that fits with it you know, preceding the real dawn, which, you know, the return of light, the return of life, etc. That is a really tight connection. The same word meaning Son of Morning, Dawnbringer, Lightbringer, that's pretty cool. I like that connection. You, you know, it's always a, it's always worth being cautious about going too deep into these connections. But you also can't ignore them when they're, you know, when they're they they look like this when they're seemingly pretty strong. Yeah, that that one kind of popped out to me. I was like, okay, wait, Son of the Morning and Lightbringer, and then the word Dawn's in there too, and then you have this fallen star that Dawn is made from. You know, it's like, wait, there's yeah. now you got a star too. 
It's, and the sword Dawn is, like you said, it's made from a fallen star. So, and that literally brought us Dawn, the sword of the morning. So, yeah, it's it's all it's all pretty well fitting. Exactly. And so, I take this to mean that Dawn and House Dane must surely have some kind of relationship to the Lightbringer myth. All the more so if I'm right about the cause of the Long Night relating to Moon Meteors, which are fallen stars. And of course, the Night's Watch vows say that they are the light that brings the dawn, as well as a sword in the darkness. It's something that's been debated a lot, and how that relates to the sword and the Danes is pretty interesting. Right, so basically all of this language is taken straight from the names of Venus as the Morning Star, and it might indicate a connection between Lightbringer, House Dane, and the last hero in the Night's Watch. Kind of all of that together. And more accurately, we should actually say that it's another piece of corroborating evidence for these connections, because many people were certainly already making those. Um, our buddies on Radio Westeros, for example, definitely are of that opinion. Yeah. Give a little shout out to everyone. If not uh, not hip mm. to Radio Westeros, they have some great episodes on The Long Night in Azor High that uh, I'm a big fan of. Yeah, if you haven't listened to those, you're missing out. Radio Westeros, Lady Gwen and Yoke Boy, great stuff. And uh, I, like I said, I was listening to their, their episodes on The Long Night in Azor High at the same time as I was listening to yours, because I was just sort of thinking about all that stuff. And uh, I found that they all went together very nicely. So <laughs> Now, returning to House Dane and their dark light morning-evening dichotomy, these, you know, good guy, bad guys, or whatever, it seems clear that a large part of the concept of Sword of the Morning is based on the Morning Star, as we've shown. But then we also have these dastardly Danes who are associated with evening and darkness, just as the same star, which can be the morning star, can also be the evening star. So just as the sword of the morning should bring light, the sword of the evening should bring darkness. And what is a dark star? A black hole, something which devours light and brings darkness. So it's about time that we talk about the sword itself. I think that's, we've been almost saving the best for last. This is not the last section of this episode, but I know through all this Dane talk, we've been building up to Dawn, and now finally it's time to get into it. We're not just going to talk about what it means symbolically, but we're going to talk about perhaps how it was made, where it came from, things like that. So you've been, uh, you've been doing a great job of uncovering the sort of uh, archetypal theme of each house like we're talking about. And so what I think is that basically this whole good guy, bad guy, day-night thing yeah. of House Dane is drawn from the Morning Star and Even Star. And so when we go and start talking about uh, the, uh, the swords, I think that there actually might have been two swords, a black sword and a white sword, you know, one that gives light and one that drinks the light. And so that, all, that has to do with the idea that Dawn is similar to Valerian Steel, except that the color and its relationship to light are both different. Hmm, that's true. Let's get into that. Let's, let's first introduce the sword from the earliest known things we know about it, and let's get a, a good quote here from The World of Ice and Fire. Its origins are lost to legend, but it seems likely that the Danes have carried it for thousands of years. Those who have had the honor of examining it say it looks like no Valyrian steel they know, being pale as milk glass, but in all other respects it seems to share the properties of Valyrian blades, being incredibly strong and sharp. Well, the first remarkable thing about Dawn is that it's supposedly thousands of years old. We've talked about a bit about the origins of House Dane and how these could be tied to the sword itself. We don't know exactly what was in that meteorite ore that Dawn was made from, but it certainly seems like a very advanced type of metal, as Dawn bears all these properties of Valyrian steel, of course. 
That means it's basically unbreakable, lighter than normal steel, doesn't lose its edge. Definitely seems like there's some magic involved. What is an advanced sword like Dawn doing in Westeros in the Dawn Age, though? Well before supposedly Valyrian steel existed. Well before Valyria even existed, quite possibly. So that part is rather peculiar. Do you think maybe we're looking at some some uh, timeline differences, or maybe is there more to it? And what do you think? Look at take take a deeper look. Okay, well, first of all, I'm, I'm definitely always a fan of questioning anything in the timeline from before the Andals, essentially. But I do think that it, all indications are that Dawn does come from before the Long Night and before Valeria. I so <clears throat> we've seen how the various words that mean Morningstar suggest a connection between Dawn and Lightbringer, and that Dawn and, and uh, as well as Dawn the Last Hero. So perhaps it's not a coincidence that we find implications of an advanced steel-making sword in both of these tales. Azor High's sword-making process was described as heat, hammer, and fold, which is a match for the real-world real, real, uh, real folded steel-making process of uh, what you call Damascus steel, and also the Japanese katanas. Uh, they do the same thing with the folded steel. So that's, that's a definite description of a steel-making process in the Azor High myth. And then, of course, the last hero wielded something remembered as dragon steel. Now, it's, it's well possible that these steel-making details were added later that, um, you know, they just called them steel once steel was around. But uh, we do have some evidence that there was uh, an advanced steel sword in the Dawn Age, which is Dawn. So we have reason to wonder if maybe these tales do, in fact, describe some sort of advanced weapon making process. Yeah, the the meteorite itself may hold the answer. They usually contain iron and often the other trace elements that could be added to iron to make steel, such as nickel and phosphorus. Well, if you don't have the advanced mining techniques to get those things out of the ground or to to smelt the metals together to the proper techniques to make the alloys, well, then you can't make a sword like that. But if a meteor just falls out of the sky and has kind of the work done for you, well, then that could explain the technological gap. In other words, they can't make that they can't duplicate the the metals inside that meteor, but if they have the meteor sitting right there in front of them, well, they can work with that. So that I can I can kind of understand how that might work. But per, so perhaps all they had to do, in other words, was melt down that meteor and then make the sword, as opposed to the long process of experimentation that's required to discover the technique of steel making, which would have happened, you know, potentially thousands of years before the Andals even were a thing, much less bringing steel to Westeros. Right. And this is one of those things where, you know, it's fantasy. Don't think too hard about it. I mean, if we if we need a source of magic metal in, you know, in the 10,000 year ago past, then a meteor is a pretty good way to do it. So that might be the key. Um, and so you mentioned phosphorus as being an ingredient uh, in uh, potentially in comets. So think of that that idea is really interesting because when you think about phosphorus as an ingredient in the pale stone that Dawn was made from, um, because phosphorus is the Greek equivalent for the word Lucifer. It's another word which means morning star, light bringer, and son of the morning. It's just the Greek word. So phosphorus is, let me just tell you, it's a white mineral which burns very brightly. It can be added to steel to make sharper, as you mentioned. Uh, It was actually a necessary element in the first chain reactions that led to life on Earth. And scientists even think that the first phosphorus was brought to Earth on the backs of comets. Mm -hmm. I've heard that too, yeah, that that some of the building blocks of life, the certain proteins or etc. came from 
a comet seated elsewhere. Not This is an alien talk. This is just, you know, the right ingredients hitting the right place at the right time and being struck by lightning or whatever chain reaction caused it. Yeah, and that really brilliantly ties in here. We have the life-giving, life-saving properties of the sword and its symbolic meaning. And then we have the perfect comparisons as far as color, shininess, the, the, the mild glow, the color. It all fits really nicely, and I think that's cool. I like it also because it's a fantasy explanation grounded in real-world you know, logic and, and how things really work. So I love that because George, that is part of how George operates. He loves to, you know, make, take the realistic version of things and then add the fantasy elements on top of that. So he's got the foundation of realism built on this awesome fantasy setting. I'm actually really glad that you said that. That's a major premise of a lot of the stuff that I'm looking into. Like when you look at frozen fire, you know, obsidian is actually frozen lava rock. Sorry about that. Uh, it is actually frozen lava rock, and so to call it frozen fire it makes a lot of sense. And then so George is simply imbuing it with the power of fire magic. So he's basically taking the natural qualities of something and then just trumping them up. Like the doom was a volcanic explosion, but you add a little bit of magic in it, and it leaves like you know magically radioactive after effects and stuff. So it's just a trumped up version. So think about the last hero's dragon steel. Comets can be symbolized as dragons. So dragon steel might be comet steel, yep. which creates a potential link between Dawn and the last hero again. That's right. And if that's the case, that brings another question. If the term dragon steel is a thing, you wouldn't think it just applied to one sword. That's a class of steel. So that potentially gives some credibility to your idea that there's another sword out there, or there could be a lot of other swords out there that are just long lost. There's a lot, a couple different possibilities there. That would be... Uh, surprise tryst in the line with the way that George likes to play with the way prophecies are fulfilled. They come true, but not in the way you think, not in the obvious way. Dawn, the sword of the morning, the light that brings the dawn and ends the long night. It makes a certain amount of sense, but if it wasn't at the wall, perhaps it had some other role in the war for the dawn. Okay, so Dawn's direct comparison to Valerian steel reminds me of the whole Morningstar, Evenstar dichotomy of Venus. So now consider the color and descriptions of each. Dawn is pale as milk glass, while Valerian steel is smoke dark, and a gray so dark that it's almost black. Dawn is alive with light, while Valerian steel has a dark glow and a smokiness to its soul. So now Ned's sword, when it's split in half by Tobo Mott, darkens the coloring of the steel, and Tobo says that it drinks the sun from it. So that sun drinking is kind of the opposite of being alive with light. And it puts us in mind of Dark Star, the black hole, you know, and sun drinking, light drinking in particular. It also kind of reminds us of the greasy black stone in Ashai, and that's also found in a few other places around the world, which drinks the light, the, the same as the stone in the, of, of the burnt pit, which Danny keeps Viserion and Rhaegal locked up inside the Great Pyramid and Marine. Since Dragonfire is used to make Valyrian steel, it may not be coincidence that swords forged in Dragonfire and stone burnt by Dragonfire both are said to drink the light. It's, it's a bit metaphorical and is that it's so dark that it sucks up the light. But that's also how, you know, a black hole works. It literally drinks light. Well, drinks is not the correct term, but you get you know what I mean. Ashai may have also something to do with dragons. We, we have there's a lot of suggestion in the world of ice and fire that it was the original Ashai, whoever they were, that were the original dragon lords that taught the Valyrians so much of what they know. And if they did that, if they taught them how to, you know, 
merge with dragons and how to ride dragons and how to bind their blood to dragons, then it's not a stretch at all to think they could have also taught them a thing or two about making special swords. The point it is that not despite these symbolic sim, sim, uh, rather apart from these symbolic similarities, there's these you know technological similarities, these, these grounded similarities, the more mundane commonalities between dawn and Valyrian steel. But in some ways, it's inverse. For example, this whole light concept where one is giving off light and one is kind of drinking the light. But they're both light blades as in weightless and the sharpness and the way they hold an edge. Even the fire associated with Valyrian steel is dark. The ancestral sword of House Targaryen is called Blackfire. And there's also, you know, Dark Sister and... Possibly some other ones out there that are long lost. <laughs> uh, well, there's uh, there's one called Nightfall. Oh yeah, good one. Yeah. Uh, there's one called Red Rain, which I've got some ideas about. Rain of Blood, cue the Slayer, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of what I'm getting at with my ideas about two swords: a black sword that might have been some early form of Valyrian steel, perhaps from a shy, and then you've got Dawn made from a white meteor. Um, and there's actually a cool story about a black meteor in the world of Ice and Fire that we'll talk about. Uh, I guess next time, that uh, is also related to the Lightbringer and the Long Night myth. So we've got black meteors and white meteors. So let's ask the question straightforwardly. Is Dawn Lightbringer? A lot of clues seem to point that way. And yet, Lightbringer was made with blood sacrifice. Supposedly it was a willing sacrifice. We're told that Nissa Nissa gave herself her life, her essence, to make this sword. If that's the truth then that's interesting. We've got a really interesting comparison to work with here. Supposedly, we'll take this willing sacrifice and then compare that to what we think we've been told about Valyrian steel. Valyrian steel is rumored to be made with blood sacrifice. That's a part of the process. It fits with what Archmaester Marwyn said about all Valyrian magic is rooted in fire and blood. Now, check out this quote from World of Ice and Fire, which is the source for this blood sacrifice thing. According to Paul, the true reason for his final exile was his discovery of blood sacrifices, including the killing of slaves as young as infants, which the Cahoric Smiths used in their efforts to produce a steel to equal that of the freehold. So I'm doubting that the Cahoric were just looking randomly for ways to come up with, to try to duplicate Valyrian steel, and they're like, hey, let's try blood sacrifice. That might work. So, no, I think that they, there's a reason they tried blood sacrifice. It's they knew that it was involved in the process already. And why wouldn't they? Kohor was held by the Valyrians for a long time. And it makes sense, especially a city that's known for having skilled smiths. I think they know how to make it. They just don't have the right ingredients, it's particularly dragon fire. That's what they're missing. So they were trying to make it without dragon fire. So they're looking for ways to get around that, perhaps. So let's consider that that's truth, though. Let's, let's assume that this tale is true and that there is blood sacrifice involved. So potentially that might draw a connection between the smoke-dark Valyrian steel and the Lightbringer of Azor High story, which was made with blood sacrifice. Um, you know, and yet Dawn is white. So if Dawn is Lightbringer, Perhaps its blade is white because the life that went into the blade was given willingly, as we're told Nissa Nissa did. It's pure, clean, and good. <laughs> if the Valyrians substituted unwilling victims, well, thematically and symbolically, it makes sense to have the blades come out dark and with a little bit of redness to them as well, almost black, impure, dirty, and evil. 
Are, really, are we really supposed to believe that a hero's sword required a human sacrifice, though, willing or otherwise? Even for George R. R. Martin, that's a little tough. Yeah, I would have to vote no. Uh, hashtag Team Abomination. And, uh, you know, I mean, Lightbringer is also known as a red sword, and it supposedly turned red uh, when it was covered in Nissa Nissa's blood. It's also supposed to be warm as Nissa Nissa had been warm. So we've got a white sword with Dawn, not a red sword. And Jamie was knighted by Dawn, and his flesh was even cut a little bit in the process, but no mention is made of heat. So, on the other hand, we're also speaking of fable, so it's entirely possible that some elements, like the idea of it always being warm, could be metaphorical or symbolic in nature. Yeah, as we brought up before, Dawn maybe can light on fire, or maybe it's got that possibility of something that can make that happen. I don't, we don't have any idea whether that is the case, but I don't think it would surprise anyone if it did. It would be a fist-pumping moment to be like, whoa, that's awesome, but I don't think it would be surprising. No, you know, certainly not. We've, we've thought about it too much. <laughs> so we don't know if Dawn is Azor Ahai's Lightbringer, though it does seem to be related. It could be a technological equivalent. It could be the actual same blade. And we don't know why Dawn has the same properties as Valyrian steel millennia before Valyria existed, but we have, I think, given some good both symbolic and mundane explanations as to why that would be. And we also have some ideas about some of these other things, about especially about the it having the same properties, or is Dawn Lightbringer? We did another Twitter poll that asked, is, you know, which what is Lightbringer? Uh, 40% answered unrevealed slash other. 35% answered Dawn. 15% answered the dragons. And 10% answered the Night's Watch. Now, it could be all those things. I, tw- these Twitter polls are limited in their choices. I didn't have all of the above as a choice, and I suspect some people would have chosen that if that was an option. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of an all of the above person because I look at Lightbringer as primarily a symbol, which manifests in different ways. So I would look at the dragons as Danny's Lightbringer. The Night's Watch might be John's Lightbringer. Um, someone probably will have a flaming sword. Et cetera, et cetera. I, I see them all as part of the same part of the same deal. I agree, and of course, it fits too because it seems like this whole heroic figure, Azor Ahai, prince that was promised, stallion amounts the world. You know, there's all these names that many cultures have had for it. So it seems like they're you know, it's the same kind of concept that gets brought up when we're debating who these people are. Sometimes. It gets thrown out that it doesn't have to be just one person. There can be multiple saviors, etc., savior figures. We don't have to settle on just one person. It doesn't have to be Danny versus John. It can be Danny and John. It's the same kind of thing we're dealing with here. Okay, let's move on to part five. Part five, the look of dragon lords. The great beauty of the Valyrians, with their hair of the palest silver or gold, and eyes in shades of purple not found amongst any other people in the world, is well known, and often held up as proof that the Valyrians are not entirely of the same blood as other men. House Dane has shown several instances of traits which we would normally think of as Valyrian or Targaryen, chiefly silver, gold, or platinum white hair, and some shade of violet or blue-violet eyes. They're not quite as distinct as Targaryens in most cases, so we don't want to go too far with this, but it's, there's no doubt that this is the closest similarity that, that there is, Targaryen to Dane, or Valyrian to Dane. You may not realize just how many there are, because some people like to downplay this and talk about how few instances of this there are. So let's, let's clarify and go through what examples we do have and show that there's actually a decent number. 
we've already talked about these people as characters, so let's look at, but we're only going to take a look at the way they look now. So let's take a look at descriptions of all Danes with Dragonlord looks. Okay, so first we've got Ashara Dane, who was described in A Game of Thrones as Tall and fair with haunting violet eyes. While in A Dance with Dragons, Sir Barristan is thinking about Ashara and her Haunting purple eyes. And thinks that Daenerys has the same eyes. Meanwhile, Darkstar, Gerald Dane, has hair that is described as being Like a silver glacier divided by a streak of midnight black. While his eyes are described as seeming black while the sun is at his back, but looking dark purple when up close. That's a very close match to the description of the eyes of Aegon IV, a.k.a. Egg. In The Sworn Sword we read, In the dimness of the lamplit cellar they looked black, but in better light their true color could be seen, deep and dark and purple, Valyrian eyes. Rhaegar's eyes are remembered by John Connington as a deep and dark purple. As for Dark Star's stripe, uh, stripe of midnight black in his hair, it seems like an inverted match for the son of Baylor Breakspear, Valar Targaryen, who has a bright streak of silver gold running through his otherwise brown, Dornish hair. We'll come about back to Baylor and his brother Makar in just a second when we talk about Egg's mother, the aforementioned Deanna Dane. Now, to finish up, though, on Darkstar, we see that in A Feast for Crows, Arianne Martell thinks to herself that if she were to have children with him, they would be as beautiful as dragonlords. The phrasing seems specifically chosen to call our attention to the fact that Darkstar looks like a dragonlord, uh, a.k.a. a Targaryen. Right, okay, and then we've got young and noble Edric Dane, who has... Big blue eyes, so dark that they looked almost purple. According to A Storm of Swords, and his hair is, quote, A pale blonde, more ash than honey. Egg's eyes are also described as being large, while young Griff slash Aegon VI slash Phaegon has eyes which are dark blue in the daylight, purple by the light of dusk, and black in lamplight. There's a few other Targaryens which have some degree of blueness to their eyes, such as the aforementioned Valar Targaryen, who has cool blue eyes, while Rhaegars are also called indigo, which of course means a dark bluish purple. Edric Dane's eyes are right in that wheelhouse, and his ash-colored hair seems very close to a silver, silvery white, perhaps without the luster and shine of silver. Yeah, like a muted version of those colors, but still the same basic scheme. And finally, we have Diana Dane, the wife of King Makar Targaryen and mother to Egg, King Aegon IV. We are never told what she looked like, but we feel that we have enough clues to make an educated guess. Makar's parents were King Daron the Good and Mariah Martell. Mariah must have had some of the typical Martell darker looks for one of their children. Baylor Breakspear came out with dark hair and eyes, a matter which contributed to the anti-Dornish sentiment at the time, but that's another story. Makar himself came out looking typically Targaryen, but one of his children, Daron the Drunkard, his firstborn, came out with sandy brown hair, a legacy of his Martell grandmother, perhaps, although you'd normally think of black hair of the Martell, or at least dark hair. It's not universal for them, though. Quentin has hair the color of dried mud and freshly turned earth, which is kind of in between. This could be evidence that Diana had brown hair like Ashara, though hers was dark brown, not sandy. But the thing is that all of Makar's other children that we have descriptions of came out with full Targaryen looks, including Egg himself. The dark look doesn't seem to have manifested strongly at all outside of Daron the Drunkard. Okay, and so one explanation for this may be that Deanna Dane brought some amount of Targaryen looks, quote-unquote, to the table, reinfusing some silver hair mojo into the kids, who then went on to found the line from which Rhaegar and Daenerys descend. So now when you consider that Egg married Black Betha Blackwood, 
uh, and that Danny, Rhaegar, and Viserys therefore all have some of that dark-haired Blackwood genes in their veins, and yet they all have the prototypical Valerian look, it almost has to be the case that Deanna Dane brought some Valerian looks to the mix, or else they should have come out kind of dark. Yeah, I agree. And another clue that Deanna may have had some of these Dragonlord looks is the fact that she was chosen to marry Targaryen Prince in the first place. Now, there were political reasons for Daron to marry his children off, or Daron to marry his grandchildren off, rather, to Dornish people to as part of his effort to build a peace coalition between the two, between what, the Greater Westeros and Dorne. But if Diana had silver hair or purple eyes or both, that would make, that would kind of set her above the rest to kind of keep the Targaryen looks as a possibility. Especially if you consider that that marriage doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense outside of that. The Danes aren't super powerful these days. They're not a political force. So you got to figure there is a little bit more to that reasoning for her choice in the first place. Right. It's like, you know, uh, Baylor married uh, a Martell. That makes sense because Martell's the ruling house, but the Danes aren't really a powerful house in Dorne. So why did Makar marry a Dane? Perhaps the reason is potential, you know, silver hair and or purple eyes. That would definitely make them a more attractive bride for a Targaryen. I think of the Danes as more of this house, one of those houses. It's like they're still thought of highly. They're, they're, they have ancient highborn blood but their actual power in the right. story like the number of troops they bring the number of soldiers they have the number of right. the amount of money they have it isn't yeah they're not it's not no they're isolated they're not a big political force it doesn't seem yeah. like um, so whether or not this conjecture regarding Diana is true we do have three other solid matches to Targaryen looks with Edric Darkstar and Ashara so House Dane seems to have these Dragonlord genetics popping up here and there the questions are how did they get them when, and from whom. So we think we can rule out a marriage of a Targaryen into House Dane, since the world of Ice and Fire gives pretty much the entire family tree of House Targaryen since the conquest, and no mention is made of any kind of marriage like that. And we really think it would have been had it occurred. Right, and not only that, one Targaryen marrying into the line, really, could we really assume that would account for all of their looks? <laughs> all these different ones. Like, one Targaryen gets in there and it changes their genetics forever. Especially doesn't work if you consider, well... How long ago did High Hermitage, the High Hermitage Dane, split off from the main ones? Well, both branches have this look, <laughs> so they have to, you know, this. And if they've, been, if these houses have been split for that long, then it's we're talking about some distant common ancestor, perhaps. But George R. R. Martin downplayed the possibility of the Targaryens on top of that, so it really doesn't seem likely. Yeah, there is that interview he did with Elio of Westeros.org. I think it was like maybe ten or fifteen years ago, even. But yeah, that was a while back. I, I will say that that answer he gave about Elizabeth Taylor's eyes, I mean, I have no idea what that was supposed to mean. I'm not sure anyone else does either. It's pretty confusing. Yeah, he <laughs> says that, oh, look, Elizabeth Taylor has violet eyes. It doesn't mean she has Targaryen ancestors. So that's basically what he was saying. And it's hard to interpret that. And like you say, it's important to note how long ago that quote was. I think it's at least 2002 or earlier. And we all know he's made change. Like he hadn't even invented Darkstar then. Right. Or at least he hadn't published the book where Darkstar was in it yet. And I'm pretty sure he hadn't even written him yet. Now, similarly, if Valyrian nobility had been marrying into Westerosi houses before the Doom, we think that's something we would have heard some reference to in some form. Maybe a few small isolated incidents snuck past the historians. But I would think that the Targaryens, at least for just limiting against Targaryens, they would have married the houses close to Dragonstone. They would have been marrying the, you know, the Darkland, the Darklands and these other Crownland houses, the Hollards, the, the Stokeworths, all that. The Aarons a couple times, but we hear about that. Yeah, exactly. And 
we do, according to the World of Ice and Fire, we know of other houses that have some Valyrian stock. The Valerians, the Celtigars, and of course the Targaryens. House Dane specifically not mentioned as one of those. So not a lot of reason to suspect that the Danes have any of this background, that something else is going on. So that just makes the mystery deeper. Now, perhaps a member of House Dane married a random Lyseni noblewoman a few generations back. The Lyseni have a lot of Valyrian blood in them, so we can't rule that out. But again, it's the same problem. One Lysene guy or girl is, is responsible for this look in all the Danes going forward? Doesn't work. Something else is going on. There's some magic involved. There's some ancient ancestor. Something else. Perhaps a member of, uh, rather, it seems to be that there's this dragon lord genetic thing. It's maybe super, super old, and it, it maybe explains how the Targaryens were able to keep the look for so long. Of course, the incest is part of that. But we've shown so many examples of where the Valyrian looks just... You'd think, based on the way genetics work in the real world, that they would be the recessive. But there's so many times where they come out strong and, and repeated. So I, it almost seems like there's a magical explanation. So let's look deeper into that. Right. And uh, I think at any time we could have heard about Arthur Dane's Lysani grandmother, much as we hear <laughs> that uh, Ariane Martel has a Norvoshi mother. We hear about Brown, uh, Brown Ben Plum's drop of dragon blood, as he puts it. So, I mean, at any point he could have came out and told us, oh, yeah, Arthur Dane, you had that Lysani grandmother. And, and then that would have put it all to rest, because I think Elio's been talking about the idea of the Danes and the Valerians having some common ancestor for a while. And, uh, yeah, I think, I mean... I think there's something yeah. to it. We're not the only, yeah, we're definitely not the only ones who feel, who, who support this ancient connection, this common ancestor. The fact that Elio likes the theory, too, certainly gives it some credibility. He's certainly a, a guy with some weight in the fandom. I don't mean that. I mean, uh, his opinion carries some weight. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean it that way. Uh, speaking of Brown Ben Plum, if Danny's dragons liked him, Brown Ben, perhaps they will sense this. Similar hypothetical ancient connection in Dane, although that would be a lot more distant connection. <laughs> but if it's magical, it doesn't, you know, that we don't need the distance, the time doesn't necessarily matter. That's great. So now you've got Darkstar stealing Dawn and one of da uh, Danny's dragons. That's <laughs> Wait, I didn't great, say great that. Great job, Aziz. So now, now way to get the tinfoil mill uh, going into hyperspeed. <laughs> I mean, or maybe, uh, maybe Edric Dane will have some sort of never-ending story experience on Viserion, the white dragon. <laughs> no, nobody would see that coming. I think a lot of people already see A Song of Ice and Fire as a potential never-ending story. <laughs> <laughs> bum, bum, bum. <laughs> ah, I'll be here all week. In any case, if George R. Martin regretted giving people weird ideas about House Dane with Ashara's purple eyes, for example, the way he responded to that question about, you know, the, the Danes and he with that Elizabeth Taylor, it almost seemed like he was dismissive of it. So then he... But then he doubles down and gives us Darkstar, the most Valyrian-looking one of all out of the Danes. So he's not backing off on this connection, whatever it is. He comes from a cadet branch, and like I said, it's probably not a recently formed one. So these looks can't be from some recent marriage because they apply to both branches. Yes, well, it seems like something up is uh, something is up with House Dane Aziz, I would say. Are they somehow descended from a common ancestor with Valeria, a race of dragon lords which existed before the Long Night, he asks knowingly, wink, wink. <laughs> mm -hmm. Let's talk about this, this concept of Dawn Age dragon lords in this longest ever episode of History of Westeros. There's no reason to be certain all the first men came with Garth Greenhand, and even if the Danes do come from this batch of migrants, since this was said to be 12,000 years ago, some important marriage or series 
of such could account for the appearance or the change in appearance. Or for all we know, the purple eyes don't go back nearly as long as we think, say 500 years instead of 10 to 12,000. If that's the case, we've got no explanation and there's not a lot to say, but we don't think that's what it is. And that wouldn't be fun to just leave it at that. So let's, let's, let's talk about some fun ideas that fit with the truly ancient past of Planetos or Teros or whatever you want to call it. Girth. Now, if it were... Dearth. No, girth. <laughs> girth. Oh, girth. Right. Yeah, girth. Yeah. The G-R-R-T-H. -R -R That's it. Now, if there were only the looks that we had to go on here, this would be merely an intriguing, fun speculation, but maybe even bordering on fan faction. But... In the World of Ice and Fire, we have some real evidence. We received some interesting new information regarding the origins of dragons and the various migrations into Westeros that allow us to take this a bit further when we put it together with the information in the main novels. That's right. So the, sh the short version is that we now know that dragon lords, people who can control dragons and possess the art of sorcery, almost certainly existed prior to Valeria and prior to the Long Night, and we also know that they seem to have come to Westeros in the Dawn Age. Furthermore... We have reason to believe that these that uh, some of these Dawn Age dragon lords possess the famous Valerian looks, the purple eyes and the hair of silver gold and platinum white. Therefore, the idea of a Dawn Age Westerosi people with purple eyes and silver hair is actually not far-fetched in the slightest. The best evidence of these Dawn Age dragon lords in Westeros is found at Old Town, which is very close in uh, relative proximity to Starfall. And that's where we will start explaining to you what we think we know and why we think we know it. We planned on it being a part of this episode originally, but there will be another episode. It won't be Dane Part 3, but it'll be a joint episode between History of Westeros and the Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire podcast because it's just too much of a big topic that stands on its own. It relates to the Danes, but it isn't Dane-centric, so we decided it deserves its own episode. Great Empire of the Dawn is the topic. And, of course, like I said, the Danes are a part of it, but they are only a part of it. They are not the focus, so it doesn't really make sense to, to make it a part of the Dane umbrella. That's right. Um, I think basically the Dawn Age Dragonlord evidence is basically the biggest bombshell in the world of Ice and Fire. And although we've been getting small clues about them since the first book, it's really this info about Old Town and Battle Isle and a few other places that kind of blows it wide open. So we should be able to give everyone lots to talk about. Um, and uh, to the folks on your History of Westeros bulletin board who have an inkling about what's coming and thought it was coming on this episode... It's still coming, guys. Don't worry. <laughs> it was just too big for this episode. As you can see, I mean, look how long this is already, and we barely scratched the surface on that one. <laughs> so if you want to get the jump on this idea, though, uh, LML, you tell us how to find you, because you already have, you've been working on this, this kind of thing for a while, similar lines of thought, directly similar in some cases. So talk about your show a bit, and, and you know, it's a, it's a new show, so it hasn't had time to filter out into this fandom. We're, we're hopefully giving you a boost here. So tell people what to expect. Well, first of all, thanks a lot uh, for having me on. And yes, it's obviously going to be a big boost. It's great to, to get on the show here. You get, Like I said, you guys are someone I've looked up to for a long time, so thanks. definitely a thrill. And uh, as far as the material we're going to be covering next time, some of that stuff uh, can be found on my blog, which is luciferMeansLightbringer.wordpress.com, and I've got links to my podcast from there as well. I'm also on iTunes, so you can just look up Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire, or any autocorrect mangled version of that. Uh, we'll probably pull it up. <laughs> so um, I just put out my second one a couple of weeks ago, and I might have number three out by the time that this podcast is released. Um, so... 
the support so far has been really good. And um, I've got, uh, I think I'm over a thousand people that have heard my first two podcasts, which is pretty cool. Nice, nice. Um, and uh, so, you know, I'm just, all I can say is that I'm grateful for everyone who's listened and for anyone who checks out the podcast after hearing about this episode. Thank you very much and I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, right on. Well, let's move to our outro and start to wind this down as we, as we, complete our coverage of how's Dane here. I want us to circle back to the most important thing about all this. It's something I really like to hammer away at. This whole thing is supposed to be fun. We're supposed to enjoy this. The Song of Ice and Fire is fun. It's a fandom. We're not, this isn't something we're supposed to take too seriously. We can use serious methods to analyze the material, but we're not supposed to get upset about it. We're supposed to make sure to remember this is supposed to be fun. We're supposed to have a good time. So, We've dissected House Dane using a variety of tools and techniques and had so much to say because of how interesting and fun they are and because of how hard some of it is to pin down. And we think you all had uh, fun with this too. So let's think about that for a minute. Usually we do our meta-analysis at the beginning. This time, we'll close with it. The scarcity of certain fantasy traits in A Song of Ice and Fire is perhaps why we're so drawn to those that don't fit this mold. If there was a lot of magic in A Song of Ice and Fire, the Danes would wouldn't really stand out. There would there and of course too many fantasy archetypes personally to me that's uninteresting. George R. R. Martin seems to have used just the right amount though. The Danes are at the pinnacle of this conundrumish achievement. He makes us love some of the biggest fantasy tropes in a story that loves breaking fantasy tropes. That's really cool. What an accomplishment. He just flipped the script. And that goes to show the fantasy stereotypes, even though they're stereotypes, which is kind of a bad word, they can still be pretty awesome if they're used properly. Uh, at the root, they're still they're still fun. They're still useful, but like seasoning or wine or shade of the evening, there can be too much of a good thing. <laughs> Detailed information would ruin the mystery. Not knowing what's behind the curtain is part of what we're drawn to. That's part of our interest. Now, so far, we've had a very tailored amount of Dane, and we can feel confident that there are major reveals to come, advancing slowly like a silvery glacier. But we can also be certain that he'll leave certain things forever unexplained. Perhaps that sense of enduring mystery is part of the draw as well. Thanks again to LML, Lucifer Means Lightbringer. Thanks also to Queen Rainies of the Timelines. Now, I've thanked Rainies many times. I'm, I'm not always clear on what it is she's doing for us in the background. A lot of times she corrects me on dates and timeline issues, but she also is really useful as a proofreader and catches flat-out mistakes that I've made. For example, I had Davos Dane Sword of the Morning as a lord in here, and that was just completely wrong. So she caught that, and there's lots of things like that. So thanks, Rainies, for helping make the show a lot better. It isn't always clear to, to you listeners and watchers out there, you know, how this plays out, but very important. Now, normally we do our, f I list off all of our Patreon credits here, but since this is a first full prepared episode of 2016, and because this episode is so darn long, I'm going to thank all of our Patreon supporters at all levels for making this show possible, for helping us grow, to helping me put more and more hours into this so we can, you know, I can still eat <laughs> and focus on Song of Ice and Fire and gradually improve the show by adding tech technical bits and, and buying new software and equipment, things like that. It's just really important. I can't say it enough. Thanks not just to Patreon supporters, but people who have made regular donations through PayPal, on, through our website and all that. So thanks to everyone and all the members of the fandom, and thank you to everyone who watches the show, to who likes and comments, to all the subscribers, 
we're all in this together. We love A Song of Ice and Fire, and there's so much more to go. So, welcome to 2016, another year of fun from History of Westeros, as we hopefully get the Winds of Winter <laughs> sometime in the not-too-distant future. So, on behalf of LML and on behalf of Ashea, we will see you all next time. Thanks for tuning in. Valor Morgullis and reread the books. <laughs> <laughs>